This is Jocko Podcast number 28 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. He was a mate, a real good mate he was, a friendly sort of fella, liked a joke. And if it had to happen, it's a shame it had to happen to such a decent bloke. But ah, fair dinkum, don't it make you wonder what God in heaven's thinking about up there? The way he chooses who to sacrifice, to me, it doesn't quite seem fair. You'd think he'd want a bloke to take a bloke like me, who'd be no loss to no one here on earth. But no, he always seems to pick the best, whose life amounts to ten times what mine's worth. Now, there's a sort of aching here inside. I can't quite put my finger on what's wrong. But a soldier can't afford to feel this way. He's got to grit his teeth and carry on. So how's a bloke supposed to deal with this? I know they train me well. I can't complain. But this is something you don't learn about when they teach you how to play the soldier's game. They teach you how to shoot and how to kill. You even learn which enemy to hate. But nowhere in their training do you learn how to live with the loss of a real good mate. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. That is an excerpt from a poem called He Was a Mate by a man named Lachlan Irvine, who's an Australian guy, served in Vietnam as part of the 3RAR, the 3rd Battalion Royal Australian Regiment. And, you know, you look at the Vietnam War, and there was definitely some major advances in terms of technology, because they had now things like helicopters and better radios, and they had the beginning of night vision, and they had jets and better communication. But even with all those technological changes, the basic principles of combat remain the same. They always do. Cover and move, keep things simple, prioritize and execute, decentralize command. But in addition to those technological changes, there was differences now with the people. Obviously in Vietnam there was a massive anti-war movement in America and around the world. And in America, a lot of the troops were draftees now this is something I have to explain all the time and I have explained it on here before and that is that seals and soldiers and marines are not robots they're people and even though seals for instance have always been a volunteer force and today all the military in the US is all volunteers they're still free thinking individuals they're people they're humans, and you have to lead them. But what's interesting is when you look at the leadership principles used 
to effectively lead troops today. It's the same leadership principles to effectively lead the draftees in Vietnam. Draftees or volunteers, conventional forces or special operators or civilian teams and companies and organization, the fundamental leadership principles used to actually lead, they do not change at their core. And there's a great example of this. And again, we're going back to a guy by the name of Colonel David Hackworth who wrote about face. We've talked about him before in this podcast. That book is, it's actually my favorite book of any category. But definitely within the realm of combat and combat leadership, about face by David Hackworth, Colonel David Hackworth is at the top of my list. But he actually went into even more detail about one particular episode of his career. And that was when he took over a battalion in Vietnam that was in pretty rough shape. And he wrote about that particular experience in more detail in a book called Steal My Soldier's Hearts. And it is about the... The subtitle is The Hopeless to hardcore transformation of U.S. Army 4th Battalion, 39th Infantry in Vietnam. And let's go ahead and jump on in. Three times before 1969, I'd made the same 18-hour trip across the Pacific to Southeast Asia. Nothing had changed. The plane was full of FNGs, fucking new guys, 19 and 20 year olds, pink chick cheeked, dry mouthed, wide eyed, eager, but scared. One more load of fresh meat for the Vietnam grinder. I couldn't help wondering which one of them, the KIA travel bureau, would be bagging up for their return trip home. Even the lucky ones, the ones who made it out alive would never be the same. And he talks about arriving, so he gets to Vietnam, and he talks about arriving in, in, in the headquarters, a guy named General Ewell's headquarters. And you've heard me talk about this before, about how some of the bases in Iraq, they were really, really nice, all built up. They had Starbucks on them. They had swimming pools. They had nice gyms. They had movie theaters on bases in Iraq. I know, it, it sounds crazy for people that didn't go there. But that's what America does. We have awesome logistics. We have awesome support. We have a really well-funded. And you know what? We're going to build a big base over there. We're going to make it pretty nice. And it's the same thing here that Hackworth rolls into in, in Vietnam. And here we go. Back to the book. I walked off the pad and jumped into a Jeep with a kid behind its wheel waiting to run me over to General Ewell's headquarters. The ride was an eye-opener. Nearly 10,000 rear echelon motherfuckers, remphs to the grunts out on the line, were stationed in Dong Tam, surrounded by all the creature comforts. I saw a miniature golf course and a swimming pool. I caught a glimpse inside a barracks, decked out with clean beds under mosquito nets. 
These guys pulled down the same combat pay as the soldiers in the bush who lived in the mud, watched their feet rot, burning leeches out of their crotches, and laying down their lives. So that's a common term is remph. Comes from Vietnam, rear echelon motherfucker. Obviously, Leif and I named our business Echelon Front because we wanted to be that we wanted to be perfectly clear to everybody that we were not talking about leadership from the rear. We were talking about leadership from the front. So Hackworth goes in, he spends a half an hour with uh, General Ewell, and he kind of gets told what's what. And then he, he kind of gives his assessment of what he's heard. He says, pragmatically, I could do nothing about the chain of command and the tactical operational stupidity of Dong Tam. I'd be out of Ewell's and Hunt's eyesight soon enough, and worrying about how, to com- how combat operations were being handled from above was a waste of time at best and got men killed at worst. There'd be ways around that. The reason I highlighted that paragraph is because a lot of times I get asked questions from from troopers out there that say, hey, you know, I got this issue with my boss. My boss is doing this. My boss is doing that. This is what I try and tell them. Look, it doesn't really matter. You know, you got to get out there in the field and you make some space and then you execute how you execute. You know, I'm not saying you're going to disobey, but people can't control you. And as long as you're accomplishing the mission, you're finding the best way to do it, you're going to be fine. So don't get all caught up in exactly what the boss is saying. Let's figure out what the spirit of what the boss is saying. Let's see what they want to get accomplished, and then you go out and make it happen. Mm. Because no boss should be telling you something that's completely out of sync with what your goals are. I mean, damn sure in the military, you shouldn't be getting told something like, hey, get your guys killed or give up sensitive information or lose the war. No one's going to tell you to do that. They're going to tell you to keep your guys alive. They're going to tell you to make progress on the battlefield. So... When you get that sort of, when you when you pull that commander's intent out of people and you know what it is that they want you to accomplish, go forward and accomplish it. Don't get all caught up in the little details that you might not agree with. They're not going to make that big of a difference out there. Now... As I, as I said, this, this book is actually about the transformation of the 4th Battalion, 39th Infantry. So he, he's flying out. And he talked about this about, in About Face, and we actually covered it on the podcast. This is a little bit more detail, so it, I, find it, I find it to be more, uh, cover some details that's needed. Mm. But he's flying out to this battalion, which really was having a hard time. Mm. And the guy brought him in, the general brought him in, because they knew that, that, Hackworth was a hard ass and that he was a good performer and that he if anyone could get this battalion turned around it would be him so they brought him out there mm. so now he flies out and this is his his first impression of the base where he's heading when I landed I couldn't believe my eyes or nose the whole base smelled of raw shit and rotting morale Toilet paper blew across the chopper pad. Machine gun ammo was buried in the mud, and troops wandered around like zombies, their weapons gone red with rust. These were the sloppiest American soldiers I'd ever seen, bar none. Unkempt, unwashed, unshaven, their uniforms ragged and dirty, hippie beads dangling alongside their dog tags, their helmets covered with graffiti. Not exactly what you're looking for in a good, squared-away military organization. Now, one of the guys that he brings in, he brings in one of his guys to be the senior enlisted there, to be his, his 
command sergeant major, and it's a guy named Robert Press. And here's what he says about, about Robert Press. We'd also served together in the States as well as in Vietnam, and our partnership went all the way back to the same unit during Korea. Lean and mean, Press would be my new battalion sergeant major, the non-com's chief ass kicker, and new role model. You get a you get a good impression of what that guy's like. This is a this is a gunny highway scenario. <laughs> and here's what Press had to say about the local about about the troops. I this is this is from Press. I looked around and seen no one wearing helmets, no one carrying their weapons. Everybody in the CP that's a command post group was sleeping above ground. Sleeping above ground means if they get bombed, they're going to get killed. I didn't see a foxhole anywhere. Sir, this outfit stinks worse than we thought. So that's their first impression going into this obviously bad, bad situation. Again, these are draftees. And it's even, I got to keep reminding myself, myself that too. Because the whole time I was in the military, it was an all-volunteer military. And sure, you get some slackers and some knuckleheads, but at least people had volunteered at some point to be there. Mm-hmm. These people are being pulled against their... I mean, I think you're a better, better example of this than me, Echo. Echo, imagine when you were 18 years old. I mean, when I was 18 years old, I was already signed up. I was yeah. in. Imagine when you were 18 years old and them coming to you. Where were you when you were 18? In the University of Hawaii? Yes. Playing football? Yes. Now, what if they came to you and said, hey, Echo? You gotta go to you're, the military. You have to go in the military. You're going to Vietnam. How would, how would you feel about that? Yeah, no. Yeah. It'd be rough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you as a disciplined football player, that's an athlete, you're going to be 10 steps above someone that's, you know, out on the streets of, you know, hate Ashbury, smoking dope. Yeah. But that's who these people were. It's a cross section of America. Mm-hmm. So sure, you would get some kids that were getting drafted from, you know, Iowa, a farm kid that's like, hey, it's my turn to fight. I'm going to go do it. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to get, you know, you're going to get every cross section. That's so worse when you just don't want to be there, then every word out of like someone telling you what to do or something that you know that you got to go do man, everything, every little thing. Yes, and you can't have that attitude. You, that. you have to shift that. Like when I went through officer candidate school, officer candidate school is like boot camp, but it's a little longer. And I had already been in the in the military for eight years when I went to officer candidate school, and you know they're yelling at me about the way my underwear is folded and yelling at me about looking at my food when I'm eating and yelling at me about my about my socks not being rolled up right. So I'm a grown man, been in the SEAL teams for like eight years at this point. And this happened, you know what I did? Loved it. I said, oh, really? My underwear's not measured four by four inches when it's folded up? I will correct that now and make it four by four inches. Yeah, because deep down, could you kind of recognize the value that this is this is somehow valuable in my goal? But man, if you're there yes. against your will, and yes. they're like, "Do this or whatever," I don't even want to be here. You also like you like I made it into a game. Right. right I made yeah. it into a game that I played with my full intention of winning. Right. You know, for instance, they make you yell everything at officer candidate school. You have to yell every word that you say mm. with the drill instructors or with your friends or whoever. It's not your friends, but with the other candidates, you had to yell everything. Yeah. They call it a ballistic tone. Mm. And so I made everyone yell one, because I was the class president, I made everybody yell oh, yeah. 100% of the time. Okay. So for instance, the upperclassmen had a little closet that they would sell food out of. 
you know, candy bars and sodas, right? And we had to line up if we wanted to buy something. So I I told all my people, you know, when you go in there, you you maintain your ballistic voice at all times. (laughs) So they're they're so my whole class lines up and they're going in, and everyone is yelling at the top of their lungs like, "I will take one Coca Cola (laughs) and one Snickers bar, please, sir." And it, it took about. 10 people going through and finally the upperclassmen came out and they said, Hey, you guys, when you come in here, don't be ballistic. And of course I said, request permission to speak. (laughs) You guys are not maintaining the standard of officer candidate school. We are supposed to maintain ballistic tone at all times. (laughs) And they just were looking at me like they wanted to kill me, but they couldn't say anything because I was correct. So that's the kind of thing. And, and, and that was a victory for my class, you know, because that was the upperclassmen. I was like a cool victory for the class. And everyone was all laughing and and fired up, you know, like we're going to be so perfect that people are going to get angry with us. (laughs) So that, that's what I did. Uh, now going back to the book here, he kicks this one off. This is directly out of about phase two there. And it's also, well, this one says there are no bad troops, just bad officers in the, in the book, extreme ownership by Leif and I, we have a little chapter in there called no bad teams, only bad leaders. So it's the same thing. And that axiom goes back to Napoleon who said, you know, no bad regiments, only bad colonels or something along those lines. So then he talks a little bit about the guy that was previously in command, a guy by the name of Colonel Lark, and that's a pseudonym, so, but here we go. After six months under Colonel Lark, the 439th had suffered the equivalent of nearly 40% casualties without ever meeting a significant enemy force in open combat. Rockets, mortars, booby traps, and friendly fire had done most of the damage. That's... Same thing in Iraq. That's what most people were facing in Iraq. Rockers, rockets, mortars, booby traps, which is IEDs, friendly fire. That's where you're getting most of your casualties from. Of course, in Iraq, it was mostly IEDs, but then mortars, rockets, and then you get your gunfights. You know, blue on blue definitely makes up a section, not a huge section. And, but of course, obviously, it's something that, that we experienced. Back to the book here. All armies prefer high ground to low and sunny places to dark, Sun Tzu wrote over 2,500 years ago. Low ground is not only damp and unhealthy, but also disadvantageous for fighting. If you are careful of your men and camp on hard ground, your army will be free from disease of every kind, and this will spell victory. I don't think General Westmoreland or the U.S. commanders running the war in Vietnam knew Sun Tzu from Sonny and Cher. And here he talks about what the damaging effects were of being in the low ground. In just 48 hours in soaking jungle boots, foot rot set in. Mosquitoes zapped them with malaria. Leeches sucked onto their balls and even up dicks and morale vaporized before Charlie fired one shot. Luckily, we've covered Sun Tzu on here, so no nobody that's listening to the podcast is ever going to be out there thinking of, without thinking about the basic principles that Sun Tzu taught. Mm-hmm. Most of the 439th soldiers knew that each time they took a step, they risked the ugliest of wounds. A bullet makes a hole. A chunk of shrapnel may take off an arm. 
but a mind turns a soldier into a splattered, shrapnel-punctured basket case. Many troopers in the battalion had concluded that waging war consisted of crossing a field, hitting a mind, calling for a medic, patching up the wounded, getting a medevac, then moving out again and hitting another mine. They also did the math and figured out that not many of them would be lucky enough to make it through 365 days it took to rotate home. It's a horrible view of war. You know what we're going to do? We're going to walk around in the bush until we hit a mine. Some of us are going to get blown up. We're going to call in a medevac. We're going to get them out of there the best we can if they're not dead. And then we're going to keep walking until it happens again. Back to the book. The wounds were vicious. Young men blinded, legs and arms and dicks and balls ripped off, bodies punctured with dozens of bleeding holes. For the VC, mines and booby traps were economy of force weapons, easy to deploy, cheap to produce. Besides causing heavy casualties, they produced a lot of psychological stress. Soldiers never knew when they would lose a foot, a leg, or a life. And the frustrating part was there were few ways to fight back. Because who are you going to fight against? The bomb goes off. There's no one there. It's, it's, it's a victim-activated IED, mm. which means you stepped on a pressure plate or you pulled a trip wire. Mm. Something that you did made it blow up. There's no one to, there's no one to fight against, no one to shoot back at. Mm. The tally of, back to the book, the tally of needless death in the 439th was well established before Colonel Lark took command. Lark's immediate predecessor, a gung-ho lieutenant colonel, drove the troops like indentured servants. One steamy day, a company working its way across a rice paddy was plodding through several feet of water and muck, while overhead in the command and control chopper, the colonel kept screaming, Faster! Go faster! It was never going to happen. The troops were already moving at max speed. In a lather, the colonel landed. Jumping out of his bird, he sprinted to a paddy dike and then leapt on top of it to make his point. A supreme Mekong Delta no-no. And when the almost instantaneous explosion blew him 20 feet in the air and he died immediately and needlessly, the ultimate ego trip. I was told the grunts cheered. So, the reason I, I highlighted that is because when we start talking about Hackworth and what he does, you're going to see that he's going to, like the terms he uses here is uh, gung-ho lieutenant, drove the troops, right? You're going to hear you're going to hear Hackworth doing the same thing, but there's a difference in the way that he does it. Mm. He understands what he's doing. Mm-hmm. He's not just doing it out of ego and out of pressing the guys for no particular reason. Mm. And then the other side of the spectrum, you get this guy, Lark. When Lark took command, he knew that he had to turn things around and he worked hard to do so. But with zero combat experience and not enough time with the troops, his good intentions meant less than nothing. Even the basics were ignored. He wore an army green baseball cap instead of a steel pot. Really cool. Except that the troops who followed his model and neglected their helmets wound up in Doc Holly's surgery with their brains running down their necks. He was, a, he was into good guy fraternizing to build morale. A well-intentioned notion. 
but it made for bad news in the field. So you see the two extremes. You get the, the super hardcore guy that's just a maniac pushing everyone hard. You must do what I say. And then you, then the next guy comes in. He's on the other end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Hey, I'm everybody's buddy. Let's, you know, don't worry about wearing a helmet. Hey, I know, I know that thing's uncomfortable. Yeah. Lark sent his A company on a three-day sweep of a wood line completely empty of VC. But a Ho Chi Minh wet dream of booby traps and mines. That was the day Sergeant Tom Aiken lost 17 of the 29 in his platoon without hearing a single shot. All we were doing was tripping booby traps, he recalls, his voice trembling slightly. There wasn't enemy any there wasn't any enemy in there, no gooks at all. We knew it, but Colonel Lark kept saying, sweep the wood line, sweep the wood line. More than 30 years later, Aiken made a list of the men in his platoon killed under Lark's command. When he finished writing it, his wife asked him, how could you remember all those names after all these years? His answer was simple. How could I forget them? Now here's another incident that takes place just before Hackworth arrives and takes over. The VC had planted an American-made Claymore mine alongside the road. The world blew up suddenly in smoke and fire, Evans recalls in Doc, Platoon Medic, that's another book. His blood and guts memoir of life with the 439th. A wall of supersonic steel balls blasted the passengers, shredding metal and flesh. From the bush, rockets swooshed down, lifting the jeep and trailer up into an expanding fireball that tossed mangled soldiers all over the road. Automatic gunfire stitched every square foot of the road as those few GIs still able to made a run for an adjacent water-filled ditch. Those left behind screamed and wailed and cried out. They crawled and pulled themselves around in the middle of the road like crushed bugs with limbs and pieces of their bodies missing. Teddy Creech used his elbows to claw his way across the road like a mangled worm. His hands were mutilated beyond recognition. His leg had been severed from the hip except for a tether of bloody skin and flesh. The jagged end of the detached bone kept digging into the road and staking him in place. He fumbled out his knife and in the way that a trapped animal will gnaw off his own foot in order to escape, cut himself free of his own leg. Richard Forte lay with a bullet hole in his belly. His bloated gut signaled heavy internal bleeding. His face was the color of old ivory. That's something I've seen before where someone's gut shot. There's not a lot of blood coming out of them, but you can see their their stomach starts to fill up because they're internally bleeding and they turn super pale because it's like they're bleeding out, but they're just bleeding inside of their own stomach and it's really obvious what's happening to them. Back to the book. It's all right. I'm okay, Doc, he groaned. Doc, the others, they need you. 
Go help my buddies, Doc. Where did the army get such men? Evans wondered, thinking of other, others when they themselves were dying. And what did they get in return? The VC picked us off one by one, he recalls, one by one, day after day. The 439th was helpless and demoralized against a superior army of ghosts that could do to us what it wished. So that's the situation that the 439th was in. Just an absolute disaster. And can you imagine what the morale is like day after day? You're going out, as we just said, going out, walking through the bush just in order to get blown up. Mm. So that is when Hackworth comes in to take over. And here's the... Here's the situation when he comes to take command. A scraggly bunch of battalion soldiers assembled for the change of command ceremony. Undisciplined and dispirited, wondering what was going to happen to them next, they stood like characters in a police lineup where every participant was a perp. With silver blades gleaming in the sun, a flock of brightly simonized Hueys dropped from the skies over Dizzy. Dizzy is the, the, the area where they're staying. One by one, starched army brass with an entourage of photographers strutted across the LZ, General Ewell leading the way, their fatigues pressed, their sleeves precisely rolled up above their elbows into four-inch folds, their shoes polished to grade ground perfection. To the grunts, they must have looked like aliens from outer space. I stood soldier straight and watched those from on high pay absolutely no attention to the assembled troops, the men from their battalion, their division. For them, the boys on the line were beside the point, more pawns to be ignored. It disgusted me. In the ninth Division, the gap between the brass and the grunts looked unbridgeable. So if you remember, Hackworth was a grunt. He he came as an enlisted guy. He was a junior army person, and he came up through the ranks. So when he sees this behavior of these senior leaders, which he already knows that they're back with miniature golf courses and pools, and now he sees them show up, they're in their starched camis, they're looking all perfect, and they don't even pay attention to these troopers. Even if they were to say, look, you guys look like crap. What is wrong with you? Get it together. Even if they were to say that, at least it'd be, it'd be recognition. Yeah. But to just ignore them. So he takes over and he says, time for shock therapy. As, I pl as planned, I fired the incompetent S3, that's the operations officer, and the heavy drop battalion sergeant on the spot and replaced them with Bumstead and Press. Those One of the guys I talked about earlier, Press, and Bumstead's one of uh, Hackworth's other kind of prodigies. A thousand other changes needed to be made, but I didn't want to bury the company commanders or our staff on the first day together. If I ordered all shortcomings squared away immediately, I'd have sent these leaders into overload, blown all their circuits. 
no one would have gotten anything right. So I approached this conversation from slackness to soldiering the same way I'd train a pup, just a few tricks at a time. Starting now, starting now, we're going to follow the two-rule plan, I said. I'll tell you what the two new rules are, and you make them happen. Once your troops have mastered the first two rules, we'll add two more, and we'll keep doing that until we're squared away. First we'll crawl, then we'll walk, and then we'll run. Just stay with me, because we're going to run faster and faster every day. They shot me a prove-it look. So you can see Hack, he's going into a little prioritize and execute, right? He knows that people can't, he's not going to change everything immediately. He's got to do it in some steps. And that's the same thing you do with any, any situation that you face where you've got multiple problems that, are, that you're looking at. You can't, you can't change them all at once. You can't fix them all at once. You pick the biggest problems, you start with those. And here he's starting to establish himself and his men and his, and his leadership team as to what their attitude was with the troops. A few days later, after finding a very small soldier who told me his feet were killing him because he couldn't get any boots to fit him, they were all too big, I had a little conversation with the good S4. S4 is the supply elements uh, uh, in the military, in the army. Hack went ballistic, Johnson recalls. He chewed out his chain of command from his squad leader to his company commander, and then he got a hold of me. He made it very clear that I better get that man a pair of boots or all kinds of horrible things were going to happen to me. The army did not make a men's boot small enough to fit this little guy. We scavenged the country and found a pair of women's boots that fit the bill. This taught us all an important lesson, that Hack cared for the lowest of soldiers and he expected his commanders and staff to damn well look after them. This is how Hack goes on a campaign to change people. Mm-hmm. The little things build up. Now he's continuing. He's starting to tighten things up more. I finished my first session with a set of orders that stunned the commanders. Here's the drill, I told them. We're shrinking the perimeter tonight. I want you to recon your new positions. When it gets dark, each company will pull back. You'll maintain your old positions with half your force, and by midnight, I want those holes filled in. I want nothing left that the enemy can use, particularly holes that the VC can hop into if they attack. All your people will be at 100% stand-to, ready to fight in the new positions by midnight. I expect total light and noise discipline. Remember, nothing happens other than reconning until after dark. You've got, to, you've got to always remember that the enemy's out there in the bush watching our every move. And he's always looking for a weak spot to knock your cock stiff and close down the show. You call me at midnight from the new positions. Midnight. Understood? The commanders went out to brief their troops. My orders went down like an iron kite. Preparing a fighting position is hard, sweaty work. Moving a fighting position is even more of a bitch because you have to fill in the old hole before digging in again. It sucks in any circumstances. They hated my guts. And now he does the same thing with, his, with, the, with the leadership element, which works in the, what's called the TOC, the Tactical Operations Center. He says, and all the TOC personnel, regardless of rank, were ordered to dig in individual foxholes around it. They'd live there when not on duty. My talk order had a twofold purpose. 
Having a bunkered command post made it much harder for Charlie to take out the battalion op center with a one well-directed round, which remarkably he hadn't already done. And if Charlie hammered the battalion with incoming fire or penetrated our outer line, we'd have an inner perimeter of staff we need to hold off the enemy while we fought the good fight and called in supporting fires. Plus, the staff would be setting a positive example for all the line soldiers. We'd live exactly like the grunts. We'd sleep on the ground like Stonewall Jackson did during the Civil War. No one would have a plush deal anymore. Common theme, we've heard that one before. Then that night, so after they pull their perimeter back, and they've cha- basically changed their positions to what the enemy saw during the day. During the day, the enemy saw where they were. Once the once it got dark, they moved to new positions. They dug in. They filled in their old holes. Mm. Night comes, and guess what? They get attacked. Mortar rounds, recoilless life, rifle, rifle fire, machine gun fire, and RPG rounds screamed in, chum Roberts recalls. Then all hell broke loose. Strobe lights... They had just become an SOP at Hack's commander's meeting that afternoon, flipped on around the perimeter. The VC were hitting us hard, but we were ready now. Wow, I thought. Stay close to this guy, and you'll be all right. Then another guy that Hack overheard as they're getting this attack, and they survive it, and they do well. No one gets injured. He hears a guy say, he's a mean son of a bitch, but he knows what he's doing. Again, this is part of the campaign. Dawn, back to the book, Dawn was breaking and Press walked the perimeter. Sir, some of the troops are saying that you have your shit together, he reported. They're talking about how you pulled them back. Maybe I'd made a few converts that night, but I knew I was a long way from convincing the grunts that they could hit Charlie harder than he was hitting them. Over the next four weeks, I talked to every swinging dick in the battalion. I told all the soldiers, all the sergeants, all the lieutenants and captains in each platoon and company what was expected of them and why we were going to be the best. So so just to reiterate what he just did, he's going around and personally talking to all the leadership and all the soldiers, everyone, personally talking to them all and telling them what was expected of them and why they were going to be the best. This stuff just doesn't happen. You have to make it happen when you're in a leadership position. Back to the book. When I spoke to the troops, I promised I'd take care of their butts and be right out there with them when things got hot. I wanted to get it into their heads that by stealing a page from the enemy's book, we could take the war to Charlie rather than waiting for him to strike. Now he talks a little bit about the VC. He says the VC were very detailed planners, but strict adherence to their plan was also their Achilles heel. They almost always stuck to the scenario even when things turned to shit. So that's great. You're a good planner. That's great. You came up with a really solid plan. But when things start going sideways and you maintain that plan, you don't make any adaptations. You're going to get crushed. And that was, he's saying, the VC's biggest weakness. I also had all our leaders read a pamphlet of combat rules and tips from articles I'd written that I put together as the Battalion Combat Leader's Guide. 
I wanted them to get in their heads both how Charlie fought and and thought and how I fought and thought. I wanted to build an offensive team to make Charlie react to us instead of calling the shots as he was doing all over Vietnam. I stressed how we'd find him by being hardcore and agile, using stealth and cunning, and how he could turn his very own tactics against him. And that's, I breezed over this, but the other things that he had all of his people read was Mao's Little Red Book, which was the, the communist, you know, sort of manifesto about fighting, and then Vietnam Primer, which is another book that Hackworth put together. So he'd have everybody, he was, he was educating the troops, he was educating the leadership, not just on how he was going to do things, but on how the enemy thought. And this is a rehash from About Face, but let's just go ahead and rehash it. I brought back saluting, a sign of military discipline that had been swallowed up by the rice paddy mud. Then I added a twist. When a soldier saluted, I required him to sound off with a loud, hardcore recondo, sir. To which the officer would reply, no fucking slack. The salute, discipline aside, also built unit pride. The name Rakondo, a combination of reconnaissance and infantry doughboy, came from the rugged hands-on training of the 101st Airborne Division practiced at Fort Campbell, training modeled after the British Commando and American Ranger courses. Hank Emerson had named the 1st Brigade the Rakondo Brigade to make the unit feel elite, like an airborne outfit. Hitchhiking on this idea, I named the 439th the Hardcore Rakondos. Bob Press hired a machine shop in Saigon to make small black metal Rakondo arrowhead pins, which the men quickly began wearing. We painted the Rakondo insignia on the sides of our helmets and on all of our vehicles just below the windshield, along with a large white hardcore. We painted the same insignia on company and battalion signs at the fire bases and back at our rear area in Dong Tam. We also had sharp-looking, hardcore Rakondo stationery printed up and gave it to the troops, and all outgoing mail was stamped with the Rakondo logo. All of this said, we're different. We're not just plain old infantry, we're the best. Hardcore Rakondos. We drove the point home that in infantry combat, the team, the squad, platoon, and company was the primary instrument and inspiration. We stressed pride in itself, pride in unit, and never let a buddy down. Rifle company designations were changed from the conventional Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, and Delta to Alert, Battle, Claymore, and Dagger, which went down as Mickey Mouse until the troops got into it and began to think it was very cool. Now that's something that I completely... Ripped off, emulated, stole from Hackworth when, when I was a task unit commander. And the, you know, the, the designations for the task units are Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, Delta sometimes. Sometimes Delta, usually, when I was in, it was Alpha, Bravo, Charlie. And so obviously I said, uh, we're not going to be Bravo. We were assigned the name Bravo, but we immediately changed that to Bruiser. And then we lived that way.
Back to the book. Hardcore soldiers wouldn't look like bums anymore either. They'd shave every day, wear their gear properly, and always be in camouflage when on ops. And the leaders made it happen by setting the example and being hard but fair. This was all viewed as chicken shit at first. And I was considered, to quote Doc Holly, the original G.I. Joe lifer sent from hell to burn their hides with fire and brimstone. So, if you don't know this, lifer, the term lifer in the military, especially during Vietnam, you know, that's the opposite of a draft, you know, a draftee that does, just wants to do his time and get out. The opposite of that is a lifer. Someone that's totally into it, someone that's totally gung-ho and fired up. And they call him the original G.I. Joe lifer. As Claymore Company's Jim Robertson put it in a February letter to his parents, our new colonel is nuts. It would take a week to tell you all the nutty things he's done. So I'll make it short. Line companies are offering $1,600 for his dead body. He won't last long. He'll get zapped. He's stark raving mad. Nobody liked hack, alert companies, Tom Aiken recalls. I remember the guys from B Company talking about we're going to kill the son of a bitch and we're going to put a bounty on him. And I'm telling you the truth, if I've ever told it in my life, I turned around and glanced at one of them said, one of them, and I said, I'll throw in the first $20. But each time they saluted, they gave themselves a little subconscious commercial of brainwashing that they were hardcore, and after a while, I knew they'd begin to believe they were the meanest mothers in Vietnam. The men of soon-to-be hardcore battalion hadn't seen anything yet. Threats or no threats, I continued to issue them a daily, basic, brown-shoe, army ass-kicking, and tighten both the discipline and standards more and more. Of all the many traits needed to survive and win on the battlefield, discipline is number one. Without absolute discipline, you lose. And these guys still had virtually none. And again, I got to point out that the original, remember the original guy that was super hardcore and trying to impose this discipline? It's very similar to what Hack's doing. Very similar. The difference being, number one, he cares about the guys. And they just haven't seen that yet. They don't understand that the discipline that he's teaching them is going to keep them alive. And when they recognize that mentally, he knows he's just got to push that through that point. Mm-hmm. He's not making them do things just to make them do them. Not, he's, not ma- he's not using discipline just to be authoritarian and prove that he can make them do it. That's not his goal. That's not what he's doing. He truly is. His, the reason he's trying to impose discipline on them is to keep them alive because he cares about those guys. Mm-hmm. And it's going to take a little bit of time for them to recognize it. But once they recognize it, they're going to be on board. Here's what he told his uh, battalion leaders. The, the leadership inside the battalion. If you take care of your soldiers, they'll take care of you. According to Battle Company's Lieutenant Carl Olson, an OCS draftee who is sharp as a Hinson custom knife, the rules were simple. Check weapons, check feet, show that you care, and let the troops know if we get into deep shit, help will be on the way. 
I used every second, every day to train and instill discipline. Beginning with something as basic as making sure every man wore his steel pot and carried his weapons at all times. We trained in the fire base. We trained on the ambush patrol. We trained sweeping a large patch of jungle. We trained searching for Charlie. I stressed to all the unit leaders that all of the drills must be executed over and over again until they become automatic. I wanted these soldiers to roll into a firing position or take counter ambush action even in their sleep. Close combat allows little time to think. Do it right in training and you'll do it right when the incoming slugs flash by. Training and discipline, discipline and training. The men groaned and moaned, but sacrificing and suffering together gave them pride in taking all that crazy bastard could throw at us, as Lieutenant Toller described it. So now you're starting to get them unified a little bit, just in fighting against the man, you know, against Hackworth. I will, that's very similar to what happens in, in boot camp or in officer candidate school. The, the drill instructor or the drill sergeant sort of becomes the enemy that you're fighting against. Mm. You know, you want, you want to, you want to beat him. You don't want them to find dirt. You want, you want your room to be squared away. You want the, the platoon to be squared away. And so you start to unify as a team. But the only reason you're unifying as a team is because there's someone to unify against. Right. And then on, purpo- on purpose? Kind of, yeah. 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 And then eventually you realize that he's doing... It's the same thing that's, that he talk, is being talked about here. Eventually you realize that he's doing this to make you a better person mm. and make your unit stronger. Yeah. Hot Chow, routine under Lark, was now a blurred memory from softer days. My idea of looking after the troops was not to spoon-feed them, but to make them as hard as forged steel, deadly in their kill-or-be-killed trade. Eating sea rations, everyone knew could easily, everyone knew hot food could easily be flown in, made the point better than ten lectures. The ways of the past were over. That's something I didn't talk about. Lark would fly, would have hot food delivered on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And there's risk and there'd be convoys that would get blown up and Hackworth's, no. We're going to eat field food. The ways of the past were over. Stay alert and stay alive. You can't make a unit proud by praising it. And you can't make a soldier proud by telling him how tough or good he is. That's superficial stuff. No pain, no gain. They had to earn it. The standard was perfection. And not just for the grunts, all the battalion support personnel, cooks, clerks, supply, drivers, were to be soldiers first. Important stuff. Your unit doesn't become good just by you telling them that they're good. In fact, I always think that sets them back. Mm. You're good to go. Oh, you're doing great. Because they get that little bit of satisfaction. They get the satisfaction and their ego starts to think, I'm doing great. Right. I'm doing great. Yeah. Yeah. I don't need to train as hard. Right. Even just for one day, you know, I'll take, I'm doing great. Yeah, I'm I'm ahead of the game or whatever. Maybe I'll take a little day off over there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not a good plan. 
Regardless of my heavy schedule, I made sure to talk to every replacement to welcome them to the hardcore before they went out to their units. At night, I'd come back from operations late, and Sergeant Major Press would have the replacements assembled and waiting. I stretched to each new man how important he was, how important it was to follow the basic fundamentals of the infantryman's trade. With the zeal of evangelist, all hardcore leaders drilled into new guys that when they joined the hardcore, they were joining a special brotherhood. I made the code for the these leaders simple and clear. Fight smart. Never be in a hurry. Lead from up front. Set the examples. Take care of the troops before you take care of yourself. Keep the good commo going. Follow the Vietnam primer and the battalion combat leader's guide. That's it. Simple, clear instructions for his leadership. Many combat vets come to think they know it all and start taking shortcuts. They blow off the basics and neglect the little things that keep them alive because they get cocky or think it's better for their men's morale. They build a fire at dusk, smoke at night, walk on trails, don't carry their weapons, goof off on security, don't safe their grenades or weapons, wear mosquito repellent on ambush or patrol, don't send out flank security on operations. Shortcuts get you killed. The troops continued to bitch, but that changed when they saw the tough love was for real. One day, Mergner one of his leadership. One day Mergner saw a soldier wearing jungle boots with the toes worn out and immediately gave him his own, a pair of his own, which happened to be the right size. The story spread like wildfire. Finally, someone cared. Not long afterward, Mergner went down in the CNC chopper to pick up a wounded soldier, a soldier wounded by a mine. As the medic slipped the wounded man on the chopper floor, he looked up at Mergner, grinned, saluted, and said, Hardcore Ricondo, sir. A new gung-ho attitude started to take hold. And that's the opening of the book. And then you get into the combat that they went through, which was just a great great stories and lessons you can learn from understanding the tactics that they use the leadership the pressure situations that they went through and it's definitely a book that you should get and read so you can absorb all that information but i'm going to go to the end of the book to the afterward and it's something that Hack wrote basically right after he had got done. Right after he got done being the battalion commander. And he'd led him through a bunch of combat. He changed him from the, the hopeless to the hardcore. It's a fantastic display of leadership. And it's, you know, it's like the boat crew story in, in our book. You know, when the when they changed the boat crews from the boat crew six team is in the last place on all the races and, and boat crew two is winning all the races and they just switched the leaders and all of a sudden boat crew six starts winning the races. It's the same thing here. You have a battalion that's horrible, that's the one of the worst, that's got the worst record in Vietnam. And sure enough, you put in a new leader 
and they become the best battalion in Vietnam. Leadership is the most important thing on the battlefield. So from those from that experience he goes into this. I could never figure out army logic. The command of an infantry or tank platoon is the most demanding and dangerous job in the armed forces, yet the army's senior brass consistently fail to recognize this reality and provide lieutenants with practical, hands-on training they need. As a result, platoons too frequently wind up under their command of under the command of the least qualified, most inexperienced leaders in the military. The average infantry lieutenant who joined hardcore in 1969 was simply not prepared to lead a rifle platoon because the army's approach to training had failed to ready him for the reality of combat in Vietnam. He was extremely weak in troop leading, practical knowledge, and small unit combat operations and was almost without actual field experience. The old saying, good judgment comes from experience, and experience is gained from bad judgment, was certainly applicable in the hardcore. And this is something that if you're a leader in a leadership position, you have to let your subordinates lead and you have to let them exercise their judgment and you've got to let them see the consequences of bad judgment. Mm -hmm. If you don't, they're never going to learn. Back to the book. Besides technical and tactical incompetence, the next biggest shortcomings of new infantry leader replacements were a failure to be demanding and a reluctance to ensure that their men carried out the basics that would keep them alive on the battlefield. Lack of discipline. One of the reasons for these deficiencies was that many of the social values were diametrically opposed to what's expected of a combat leader. To take a single case in point, I had to constantly deal with a civilian instilled value that drastically conflicts with the combat leadership principle, popularity. By the time these young men entered the army, they'd been brainwashed for at least 20 years about the importance of being a nice guy. After four years of college, ROTC, or military academy training, or about a year of basic infantry and OCS, they were supposed to be well-prepared leaders who always placed the welfare of their troops just below the accomplishment of the mission. Wrong. The average new lieutenant who joined the hardcore had an almost Pavlovian instinct for being popular. So the definition of welfare was up for grabs. Because he had to be a good guy, he'd become a joiner instead of an enforcer, instead of a leader, become part of the pack. Mm -hmm. Need to step up and be a leader. In Vietnam, good guys let their people smoke at night and take portable radios to the field. Good guys allowed night ambushes to be set up in abandoned hooches so they wouldn't get wet and left only one guard by the door so everyone else could get a good night's rest. They let their men leave their boots on for several days and didn't inspect their feet, resulting in immersion foot. They didn't make sure their men kept their weapons and magazines perfectly clean or protected themselves against mosquitoes or took their required material uh, malaria pills. Good guy lieutenants ended up killing their men with kindness. And you got to ask yourself, 
even, I mean, this is, you know, we're talking about combat here, but if you're in a leadership position in a business and you're not helping your troops by enforcing, by teaching, by holding the line, by disciplining them, if you're in charge of a group of people and you're not doing that, you're, they're not going to perform the way they're supposed to perform. They're not going to, then that means your business isn't going to perform the way your business is supposed to perform. That means your business is going to go down. So you're actually going to take the job away from the person because you're not going to be able to afford to pay them anymore. So because you didn't hold the line, because you wanted to be nice, because you wanted to be a good guy, you're, you're actually doing the worst thing for them. You're killing them with kindness. Right. Is that kind of like how, how you said, um, something about your kids? Like if I'm helping them, I'm If I'm helping them, them, I'm hurting them. Right, right. That's very similar. Because yeah. if you're, if you're letting your, let's say you've got salespeople and you say, oh, you know what? Don't worry about making some phone calls today. Right. You know what? I don't want to push you too hard. Yeah. W- would you rather just go for lunch with me? Would that be nice? Would that make me a good guy? Yeah, what should yeah. the, what should you be doing if you're a good leader? You should be saying, look, get on the phone. You got bills to pay. You got a mortgage to pay. You got kids you want to send to college. Get on the phone and start dialing. Make it happen. Let's go. Let's do this. Mm-hmm. Are you are you a better leader if you do that or if you go, well, let's just go ahead and go to lunch? Yeah, I understand you're not in the mood. I know how that feels. Yeah. Let's go eat lunch and have a yeah. laugh. That's a great, a great twist on that term of killing people with kindness. Because I actually use yeah. that, you know, when someone's being a jerk, oh, what should you do? I always say, oh, yeah, I know, kill them with kindness. And I literally mean it. Right. But this is a different way of doing it. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it's obviously a whole different thing. It's just the same phrase. Yeah. While the Back to the book. While the run-of-the-mill lieutenants had a vague idea of what was required, he didn't have the experience or good sense to enforce the rules. When push came to shove, he preferred to turn his head the other way rather than come down hard on slackers. He overlooked efficiencies such as dirty weapons and ammunition, improperly safe weapons and grenade, incorrect camouflage technique and the improper use of terrain, not using natural cover to provide protection from small arms fire. And without an ass-kicking company skipper or demanding NCO, The soldiers' habits became sloppier and sloppier. Carelessness ruled. And of course, the result was casualties that could have been prevented had the lieutenant demanded the small things be done well. My own experience has been that soldiers in combat will do only what's required of them. Under weak, nice guy leadership, they'll try to get away with everything they can, violate every basic rule in the book. At the same time, because they know they're wrong and that this behavior is placing their lives in jeopardy, they'll respond to the demands of a positive ass-kicking leader. The result will be fewer casualties in developing respect for the leader who cares enough for his men to make them do it right. So that's important to think about. This is not, some people hear this kind of talk that I'm saying, and all of a sudden they want to turn into a super hyper aggressive person that's going berserk on everybody and trying to enforce every little, um, every little order and every little discipline so hard that it, it breaks the guys down. And again, that's why, that's why I focused on that in the beginning. That guy, that first guy was super hardcore. You could imagine that he probably had people saluting him in the field too. Mm. He probably, You know, was, hey, you come to attention when I walk in the room. He was probably super hardcore on stuff, but it was stuff that didn't matter. Yeah. It wasn't the important stuff. Mm -hmm. And so there's a fine line, and he makes a a great point here of pointing out that your troops, they know what's right. 
They know that you're there to help them. They're going to take the easiest way possible. But when you actually step up and lead and you explain to them why this is important and you explain to them why this is why this is going to keep them alive and why it's going to make the company more successful, then you will actually get traction. Mm-hmm. And you will get loyalty. Because when you keep these guys alive, they become loyal to you. When you get your salesperson to, to sell more and do more, they're going to be loyal to you. When you get your manufacturing team to produce more and do it faster, they're, because you push them a little bit harder, they're going to respect you. They're going to thank you. Yep. They're going to follow you. Yep. Yeah, it's, that, that's, um, that's real clear there. When, when you show them some results, they'll... You know, they'll back to that. Remember that movie, The Boiler Room, I brought up before. Yeah, yeah. So he said he mentioned something along those lines where he's like, "Show them a small return, and they'll I don't know, I forget what he said. Like they'll give you their firstborn or something like that. Same thing. You show them just a little bit of results, like um, like Karate Kid. Remember Karate Kid when he's making them? So <laughs> yeah, wax on, wax off. Yeah, yeah. He's making them do that. He's making them sand the floor, paint the fence, all this stuff. He's mad. But he he starts off with a little bit of trust in him, you know, because he, he yeah. saw him, you know, you know, he's a crowded guy. And then when he saw the results, he was like, oh, man, Mr. You know, Mr. He, he, Mr. He Miyagi. Was, Mr. Miyagi was real. He was real loyal to him. Exactly. Know? Same thing. Another, back to the book, another serious shortcoming was the failure to teach leaders the importance of supervision and the techniques of supervising. The average small unit leader in 1969 seemed to take for granted that his will would be done and that he didn't have to follow up. You gotta follow up. You gotta inspect. Especially in the beginning till you get the tone right. Till people understand what it's about. What you're about as a leader. The nature of combat in the Mekong Delta and how we operated in the hardcore greatly extended this problem because small units normally operate on a widely decentralized basis in bitching terrain. This restricted regular visits from the company and battalion leaders prohibiting more experienced senior officers and NCOs from checking the platoons and passing along tips of the trade. Without an experienced demanding leader... These carelessly led platoons were headed for a world of hurt. The infrequency of heavy combat compared to World War II or Korea in 1950 and 51 and the prevalent all-is-cool attitude had a tendency to lull soldiers and leaders into a false sense of safety. The more alertness and security went slack, the greater the danger of an enemy attack became. We played right into the enemy's hands. As Sun Tzu put it so well, when the enemy is weak, attack. So in World War II in Korea, you know, 50 and 51 in Korea, they they were fighting so often that everyone knew they had to be squared away. Mm-hmm. But here you might go some time, you know, nothing happened yesterday, nothing happened the day before, nothing's happened for the last week. Maybe I don't need to clean my weapon tonight. Yeah. Maybe I don't need to dig into a new fighting position. Maybe I don't need to wear my body armor. You do. I had to inculcate the hardcore leaders with the burning need to keep their people alert and never let down their guard. 
I had to instill in them the need to supervise the troops 24 hours a day to make sure that the fighting positions were adequate. Soldiers knew the mission, the situation, and where the LPs were. Proper field sanitation was being practiced. All battlefield debris was destroyed to deny the enemy a source of supply. The troops were all sleeping undercover and protected from first round hits and fire support bases or camps. Subordinate leaders were heads up and demanding that their men were alert and tightly controlled. A never-ending list of the little things. Rifle magazines cleaned, weapons test fired, grenades safed, LPs and claymores out, sectors of fire known, salt tablets, malaria pills, jungle rot, all monitored by the medics, stand-tos frequently conducted. I had to get every leader to follow this adage. The best fertilizer in the world is the boss's footsteps. They make things grow. So just, I mean, that, that was just a giant list of all the little things. And, you know, we talked about this when we talked about Chechnya and some of the lessons learned there and how it all started to fall apart for the Russians when the, when the guys stopped shaving. Mm. And this is the same thing that Hackworth is saying. You got to hold the line on the little things. And I will tell you this. You need to hold the line, and you need to hold the line by explaining to the troops why it's important. Mm. You can't expect just to say, hey, I told you to clean your weapon. Because if I'm not coming back for another week, you know that. You're going to clean it on the sixth day, Mm -hmm. one time. What happens if you get contacted on the fifth day, and your weapon's not working now? So I got to explain to you, hey, look, this is what's going on. This is why it's important. You could get contacted at any time. You need to have your weapon ready at all times. Most important thing to me, Echo, look, I want to take you home. I want you to get home to your family. And the only thing that's going to keep you alive in a firefight is this weapon you have right here. And although we may go two days, three days, five days, five weeks without getting in a firefight, we don't know if it's going to happen in the next 30 seconds. So you got to keep that weapon ready so you're ready at the moment of truth. Do you understand what I'm talking about? That's... When you explain people why they're doing what they're doing. Mm. Because now you say, that's going to be back in, in the back of your head. Yep. You're going to be thinking like, you know what? Jocko told me I better get this thing clean. This is important. Right. If I want to stay alive, I need to keep this weapon clean. Boom. Guess what you're going to do? Break out your field cleaning kit and you're going to get it done. Yep. Clean your room. Why? Because I said so. Mm, not going to work. Oh, okay. Not going to work. Yeah. Not going to work. You know what? It'll work for for two days. You know? Maybe. Maybe. We can do the bare minimum. Yeah, you might do the bare minimum slack. Yeah. Just do a little bit. But if you explain to people why, I mean, in your room, why you got to clean your room? You know what? I have guests coming over. Our family, it needs to be represented well. If you're looking like a slob and I have one of my clients come by and they see that my own kids can't be disciplined enough to clean their room... And you think they're going to hire me to come straighten out their company? No. Wrong answer. Brush your teeth. That's a big one. Get out the rug. <laughs> get, get out the vacuum and get that thing cleaned. You know, you know, when you tell your kids, go brush your teeth when they're young, you know. Mm-hmm. Go brush your teeth. Oh, they don't want to brush your teeth. Like, why? Because your teeth are fall out. Yeah, you got to show them the, the nasty dental pictures. <laughs> People that don't brush their teeth and see how that turns out for them. Yep. And then you tell them, you know, that's what you're going to look like <laughs> when they're five years old. Then they then they turn into like uh, 
obsessive compulsive teeth brushers. So yeah. use caution. Yeah. Use the medium level <laughs> of uh, of nasty looking teeth rot. Yeah. Just the medium level. Don't yeah. find the crystal meth people that that have their teeth falling out. Don't show them that. Yeah, it's a little yeah. too extreme. It's they'll they'll brush their teeth too much. Yeah. Just find the cavity situations. <laughs> or just tell them. You know. I don't know. Just tell them what. That their teeth are gonna rot out if you yeah, don't brush them. The kids are visual most of the time. Do you they want your teeth to rot out? They'll say no. Yeah. Boom. Maybe that could work. We'll check out the dental hygienics <laughs> here in a few years on the on the children's. Yeah. We'll make a decision. Back to the book. The principle was to learn so that we didn't keep making the same mistakes again and again. To do this, we copied the VC technique of ruthlessly examining every operation, an ex exercise that was a lot easier for the VC because they weren't as rigid about rank as we were. When rank rules, people say yes, sir, when they should say no fucking way. I wanted to instill a particular sort of insubordination. Don't get me wrong, when I told the men to do something, I wanted it done. But, I also wanted an atmosphere where no one would be afraid to sound off and speak the truth. This is the dichotomy. This is the balance. You don't want, and even Hackworth, as strict as he was, and he wanted everyone to do all these, keep all these small things, he wanted them to have a rebelliousness in them. Mm-hmm. To say, you know what, Hack, I don't think we're doing this wrong. Or, you know what, Hack, I think that's the wrong way to do it. Or, you know what, Hack, I think you should have pushed us over there or left us back over here. Or, we're not going to do this. It's stupid. That's what he wants. Mm -hmm. And that's something that a lot of military people have a hard time with. Because they get offended by someone of junior rank stepping up to them and saying, hey, boss, this is wrong. And you can't have that attitude. You've got to welcome and encourage people to check you and test you and question you that's what you want yeah yes when they take it personal oh you, know, you yeah that's, that's pretty much it and they take it personal yeah like he stepped to me he yeah. didn't step to like the order or the you know the little scenario that i painted he's he stepped to me with it unacceptable you know? ego yeah check your ego Back to the book. After every operation, we'd sit down at the squad, platoon, and company level and work up a detailed critique that spared no harsh words. It was, Tom, you had your machine gun in the wrong firing position. Bill, you're right. You're, you triggered the ambush early. Hank, your go-to-hell plan sucked. War is so simple, yet the military school system tries to make it so damn complicated. Probably they need to promulgate a mystique in order pr to protect their turf. But the bare bones bottom line to winning in battle is simply to sneak up on your opponent and belt the shit out of him from behind as hard and quickly as you can before he figures out you're in the neighborhood and then beat it the hell out of there. We should train our small units in not in the classroom but in the bush where warriors can be taught the gut fundamentals of infantry combat. Rommel said, the best form of welfare for the troops is first-class training, for this saves unnecessary casualties. First-class training means hard work and sacrifice. 
General Bruce Clark's adage, the more we sweat on the training field, the less we bleed on the battlefield, is one I've followed ever since I was a teenager, and I'm convinced it keeps the casualty list short. Everybody knows those two. Mm-hmm. Does everybody follow them? Not always. Not always. You see it with the military, with police, with fire, with salespeople. Are you putting your troops through realistic training? That's hard. And making them sweat and making them think. Are you doing that? You need to. Cadets and new leaders who show ineptitude and little leadership ability, such as that walking atrocity Lieutenant William Calley of the Miley Massacre infamy, should be immediately eliminated. And I left this in here because this is an important part. If you, uh, William Calley, he's the guy that did the horrible massacre at Miley in Vietnam, murdered a bunch of civilians. Callie was recycled three times at Infantry OCS after being found wanting in leadership before finally being commissioned in order to show a low attrition rate to higher headquarters. A bad mistake with big consequences. So they had a guy, they knew he was a weak leader. He was showing weak leadership in his position going through officer candidate school. And what do they do? They recycle him three times. So he failed three times. They keep pushing him through, keep pushing him through, keep pushing him through. They finally make it through. He goes out and commits a horrible atrocity because he's a weak leader. Mm. You cannot lower the standards. More than any major enemy victory, the shame and horror of my lay caused the American people to withdraw their support from the war effort. Once they saw what Callie had wrought, they said, enough is enough. In small unit leaders, confidence like fear is contagious. Troopers can feel it, see it, and smell it. And it will rub off on shoulders from a platoon to a division as quickly as a good rumor rumbles out of the latrine. Confidence produces courage. Most leaders or soldiers aren't born with a double basic load of guts. The average leaders are as scared as the next guy in their first or 100th firefight. But if they are confident that they're tactically proficient, that their unit squared away, team motivated by a strong sense of duty to accomplish the mission, the courage that's needed to do what many will view as impossible will be there. Mouths may go dry, guts may churn, and hands shake, but when the slugs start snapping, the prepared leader will be as cool on the outside as Clint Eastwood, and no one will know he's really scared out of his brain. So if you're going into combat and you've never been there, you're in a leadership position or not, you're nervous. It's okay. No big deal. Be nervous. Do your job. Besides being one hell of a job, leading men into battle is the ultimate responsibility. On the battlefield, decisions such as go left or go right or go straight ahead are made in a split second and right or wrong, good or bad, people get killed. Leaders carry the scars of those decisions for the rest of their lives. Later, battle scenes play back 
deep into the night like an old movie. Why didn't I wait? Why didn't I bring in more fire? Why didn't I go myself? Why didn't I go to the left? Questions that will haunt the blooded combat leader until he's six feet under. Good preparation, training, knowing your job and attention to detail will keep the nightmares and any casualties to a minimum. To be a combat leader in the profession of arms is one of the most noble, most deadly jobs going. It's rough and tough and its rewards are few. But if at the end of the day the troops say, he's a good man, as opposed to, he was a nice guy, that's pretty much as good as it gets. And I know that's something that, something that I definitely felt through my whole career, especially once the war started, was I always felt like everything I, I need to do everything I can to have these guys ready. Everything I can to have these guys ready. And when I was in charge of training and I was sending platoons overseas, I felt the same way. This training is what they're relying on to keep them alive. And do you sit there and look back and say, oh, well, you know, why didn't I wait? Why didn't I bring more fire? Why didn't I go myself? Why didn't I go to the left? All those questions, yeah. You're going to have those questions, but those questions are quieter if you know that you did everything you can to prepare the guys for the situations that they're going into. This book, obviously, like like most of the books we bring on here, I mean, there's just so many lessons to learn. There's so much knowledge to gain. And, I mean, I wish I, wish I would have learned them. And, you know, I think part of it, and you, you talked about this the other day. You were talking about how when you know jujitsu, if you know jujitsu, then you can you have a certain context that you can learn jujitsu. So if you know jujitsu already, you can make sense out of things. Like you can watch a YouTube video or you can read a book and you can look at it and you can say, oh, okay, I, I can do that. You can, you can apply it. Yeah. But if you have no experience with jujitsu, it's very difficult just to look at a YouTube. You can do it, but it's going to take a lot longer because you don't have the context of the moves and so you're going to need somebody to show you you're going to need to experience it yourself so that you can understand it and and that's one of the things that i kind of think of why people like this podcast and it's sort of like what i have to offer is i've seen a lot of these things from a leadership perspective from being in platoons myself from growing up in the teams and then going into combat and then training platoons and then going into the corporate world and seeing what leadership is like there and the context of that. And I think I think one of the reasons that people like this is because I can just sort of help them put these things into context a little bit better. And then they can take them and put them into context in their own lives. But... It's nice to have that little bit of help, but you can do it yourself. Everybody has been led. Mm -hmm. You've been led by people. Most people are have been in some kind of a leadership position. 
even if they're in charge of one other person or five other people or a hundred other people, but you've either led or you're being led. And so you do have the context to put these things in, but you just have to, first of all, do the work, get the books out, open them and read them. And then when you read them, try and read them from a perspective of balancing or, or not balancing, but try and read them from the perspective of overlaying your own experiences on top of them. And that will, that's what I do. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to kind of explain my process and what my process has been over the past 20 years. When I see something, I see a leadership situation. I, overlay my own experiences on top of it and compare and contrast to it so that way I can learn something from it. I just don't sit there and blindly watch a YouTube video about jiu-jitsu without putting context over it. Right. So that's what you got to do with leadership, in my opinion. So, great book, Steal My Soldier's Heart, Hearts by Colonel David Hackworth. And I think we can roll on to questions before we get it all into the interwebs and the questions therein why don't you talk about how the interwebs can actually support this podcast Chiboha. okay uh, ways you can support this podcast and at the same time support yourself which is just, in, uh, just as important in my opinion supplementation on it supplements are the are the best ones by far. The only ones I take. Yeah, only ones I take. Only ones you take. I recommend Alpha Brain. I'm taking some Alpha Brain right, right this now. second. There you go. <laughs> Boom. Proof is in the Al- pudding. Al- Alpha Brain, the uh, instant. 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 Right. Fast results are better than slow results. No, but sometimes you need delayed results. For you know. Anyway, um, wear your bars as well. I would recommend. Mm-hmm. Do yourself that favor, big favor. Um, you can get 10% Just off. Just have a box of Warrior Bars in your house. Because yeah. when you're hungry and you don't want to eat something junk, you just open up a Warrior Bar. And you're basically eating a, a a Snickers bar. It's as good as a Snickers bar, if not better. And it's got protein in it. Yeah. And it's good for you. It's different, though. It's different than a Snickers bar. It's not a dessert. Oh, that's because it's, like it's, a... not, it's not disgustingly sweet. Yes, yeah, you're yeah, right. It's like a, it is sweet, though. Yeah, but it's like a meal sweet. You know how like mm. you eat like a teriyaki mm. chicken, how that's sweet? Yeah. But it's it's good. Alliance. Um, bro, I'll tell you what you do. You know, you, you say just keep a box of Worry Bar. Yeah. You do the, on it has this thing called Stay On It, and it's like a, you know, the, oh, the recurring one yeah. with the Warrior Bars. Yeah. That's a good call. Echo, that's a good call. Did you say yeah. onit.com slash Jocko? Yeah, yeah, for the, okay. t- for the 10% off. Because why pay 0% off? When you can pay t- or pay t- with ten percent off the price. Anyway, on it. dot com slash Jocko. Also, another way you can support this podcast is by at times when you're about to do Amazon. dot com shopping, go to jockopodcast.com dot com first. Click on the Amazon link, then go to Amazon, then do some shopping. Then Amazon will give us like a little percentage, like a referral fee. So you, you buy what you actually it. need. Yep. And you support the podcast. Yeah, and it, also at jockostore.com, there's an Amazon link. So, boom, yeah, buy what you're going to buy anyway. Uh, just click through there first. You can support that way. And, of course, 
I would say arguably the best way. No, that's not the best way. But a really good way to support this podcast is go to jockostore.com and get a shirt or two or a coffee mug or a bumper sticker. If good you like stuff. Them. Yep. There you go. Boom. Support in one of those ways. If Appreciate you the feel support. Like it. Yes, very much so. Okay. Question number one. How do you relate between SOP, which is standard operating procedures, and jiu-jitsu training? Could you say that the basics and fundamentals are the SOPs of grappling or something like drilling your specific game well? So, yeah, this is, uh, this is a pretty, actually an obvious question, right? Standard operating procedures, and when you're talking about those with me, yes, they exist in business. Yes, they exist in companies, the way companies handle situations. For me, I'm just going to bring it back to my roots in the military. You have standard operating procedures for things. You have standard operating procedures for many of the things that you do as a unit or as a team. You have a standard way of doing them. And what's good is you drill, and just like Hackworth just talked about this, you drill those standard operating procedures. You train. He's talking about how you train. You train this. You train this. You train that. You train the other thing, and you keep training it until he says they're going to roll out of bed in a, and be able to react to a combat, uh, to a, to an ambush. That's, you react with standard operating procedures. So, how do you get good at them? You train them and you drill them. Now, the same thing exists inside of grappling. Someone starts to mount you, you have a standard operating procedures to begin to escape the mount. Someone starts passing the guard, you have, or gets past the guard, you have a standard operating procedure of the procedure that you're gonna take to get out of there. You're gonna get the underhook, you're gonna come up to a single. You know, if someone mounts you, you're going to, you, you know, immediately put your elbows in tight, maybe try and shift your weight a little bit, shift their weight a little bit, get their knee light. You're going to try and put them in the back in the half guard. So these are all little stuff. If someone starts to arm lock you, what are you going to do? You put your weight down on them. If they're trying to arm you, lock you from the guard, you're going to have standard operating procedures. Just like when you're on the battlefield, you want your team to have standard operating procedures. Definitely in grappling, you're going to have standard operating procedures as well that you're going to use. Now... The way you get there is by doing repetition. That's through drilling. But in both situations, you don't want to have people so strict in drilling that they lose the ability to think. You, If you have a person that all they ever do is drill in jiu-jitsu, they actually won't be able to apply it in real life when someone's trying to resist or when the, the technique isn't exactly what they expected or it's with a person that has a different body size than what you're used to dealing with you have to encourage and you have to train for creativity and adaptation yep. again something that the military can sometimes overlook jujitsu people can sometimes overlook it you have to train for creativity and adaptation so if you're going to drill, don't just drill the way you think it's going to be. Drill the strange variations that it could possibly be. You know, you know what else is a good way to do this? You fight using imposed restrictions on yourself. Mm-hmm. So, hey, the only thing I'm going to submit you in is a Uma Plata. Mm-hmm. So, even if the guillotine's wide open, i got to th- give that up and throw an Uma Plata on you. It's going to make me, it's going to force me to be creative. Right. To bring about the different position that's not so obvious. Rolling with different people. Better than you. Worse than you. The same as you. Bigger than you. Smaller than you. Taller than you. Shorter than you. Every different variation. Mm -hmm. 
when you're working standard operating procedures in the field, guess what? You want to put yourselves in different positions. Mix the squad up. Mix the platoon up. Put guys in different locations. Then you want to get contacted. You know what? Contact front, contact left. Contact right, contact rear. Those are the basics. Guess where you're actually going to get contacted from? You're going to get contacted from the right rear and at the same time another guy over on the left a little bit. So that's what you want to drill. You want to get that creativity working because things are not going to go as you expect them to go. So, yes, standard operating procedures are important in anything that you do in a business but in a business, like you have a, again, we've been talking about sales today. You have a, you have a standard thing that customers are going to say when they call you, mm-hmm. and you can drill through all the standard responses that you're going to give them. But you also have to drill your people to, against a customer that you have no idea that's acting crazy or that has a point that you've never dealt with before. Mm-hmm. You know, any of those responses, that's what you want to deal with. Mm-hmm. You're, you're in any business. Things are not always going to go perfect the way you want them to go. So you got to drill your leadership so they can handle the adaptation, that they can be creative and still figure out solutions. Yeah, so it seems like get good at the SOP stuff. Mm. Like I know in jiu-jitsu, if you just get really good at it, at the SOP stuff. But instead of practicing SOP in jiu-jitsu, just be mindful of, of SOP a lot all the time be mindful of it yeah and i had a guy on twitter ask the other day you know hey i'm i'm in the basic i can't make it to the beginners classes mm-hmm. so i'm only in the advanced classes and now we're not drilling anything and i'm not making progress mm-hmm. and he's saying should i keep training <laughs> brother keep training definitely keep training but i think more important is just you don't have to you can you can find the time to drill on your own i mean it's a mount escape look it up on google look it up on youtube mm-hmm. see the mount escape if that's a basic that you want to work on and then grab your girlfriend and say here sit on me like this i'm going to do some movements with my hips it might seem awkward at first but i'm going to do it anyways honey and then do it that's drilling you know or once you get to class show up to class or stay class a little bit later spend 10 minutes drilling the mount escape 10 spend 5 minutes doing arm locks that's it. how many arm locks can you do in 5 minutes i mean you can do enough to drill trust me you don't need to drill for half an hour so just know the movements learn the movements and then just go and and do a little bit of drilling and you'll get there. But even if you didn't do that and you just rolled and you took the advanced class and you learned the advanced moves, eventually you're going to figure out the other stuff too. It's yeah. it's like being immersed in a language, you know? Yeah. Just because you went and got immersed in a kindergarten class doesn't mean you would learn faster than if you got immersed in a in a real life college, you know, or or a open just normal life situation. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. So if you get good at these um standard operating procedures and you can mind them all the time and at the same time like how you're saying you exercise your creativity then you can you can stick to them but at the same time mm-hmm. you can know when to break the rules so to speak you yeah. know and well you, dean well, dean is really good with some of the basic movements yeah like he's really really good at them and he can f- almost force them Whereas Jeffy Glover, he's really good at the basics too, but he he's more, in my mind, he's more apt to do something creative, whereas Dean is like so good with the fundamentals that he doesn't even have to be creative sometimes. Of course, he is also very creative. That's why he's uh, you know done so well in the world. But yeah. both those guys have crazy, I mean, any, not just Dean and Jeff, but any 
really good jujitsu player is going to be awesome at the basics, and then they're going to be creative. That's what makes a jujitsu champion. Yep. Yep. It's like um, actually Jeff has this this drill that he I think he's got he, crazy drills. I think he just thought it up on the spot too. It seemed like he did, but I don't know. But it's it's basically you. He'll be, he'll be like he'll he'll yell out a position, then you got to get to that position. Mm-hmm. Kind of the, not the fastest, like oh, the quickest you can do it physically. It's more like the, the with the least steps, you know. Mm-hmm. So if you're like, hey, half guard, now do a knee bar, mm-hmm. now do, or he'll say a submission, he'll say a um, a different position. Right. He'll be like half guard, now take his back, now you know, and you have to like, how do I take the guy's back from half guard? And you have to kind of you know, so it exercises not only your creativity but thinking fast with it, yes. you know. So after a while, you start to be like, oh, I didn't know there was a knee bar from here mm-hmm. with only like two steps, you know, that kind of thing. And I was like, dang, I really like that drill. And he was like, yeah, you like that. Yeah, and Dean, one of Dean's drills, Dean will have, Dean does these f- same thing. He'll just call out, but he'll call out like a leg. He does it with me with leg positions. Yeah. He'll be like, you know, 411, then outside, then kakareko. He'll just go through and we'll just sit there and do them. Right. And what's cool about it too is you get to learn like little defenses. Oh yeah, yeah. Also, so, you're doing it and you're defending. Not, well. not, not hardcore defense. Right, right. But you're making that little adjusty. Being mindful. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So yes, SOPs. Learn them, drill, but be creative. Yeah. Oh yeah, man. It seems like that's a 100% translation right there. Like you know that, like, kind of like it, when it is in a doubt, 100%. Go, go to the SOP. When in doubt, it, you know, it, you're in someone's garden. He's all wild. It's like. Go to SOP. Mind your base. Mind your posture. Mind your your elbows or whatever. Is there's like all these things that are when in doubt you do. It it, it is a one hundred percent translation. Yeah, it's a hundred percent. Yeah, that's crazy. Next question, Jocko. When does asking for input up and down the chain of command, as discussed in episode twenty six, hinder the leader's ability to make timely decisions, especially when gaining the initiative is critical? So, yeah, this is a question that I asked, and I got an answer for you, TJ, who asked the question. When you are – okay, so the the situation is a little bit different. If you're in an administrative situation or you're in a planning situation, meaning neither one of those are restricted by time, then, of course, get the input. And by getting the input – of course, you're, first of all, your plan becomes better because you're getting input from people. You have more brains working on it. You also, when you get input, you're building a little bit of a relationship. You're building a relationship. The, the relationship, what, what are relationships are based on trust. And so trust is a requirement inside of leadership. So that's what you want to do. If you have the time and it's an administrative scenario or you've got the time to plan, then just go ahead and... Take the time to plan. Take the time to get the input. Now, there are situations where you don't have time to discuss or debate a decision. And there's, you know, or times where maybe you have time, but it's going to affect or impact the ability to make an immediate execution, which is what oftentimes you're looking for. You want to gain the initiative, and sometimes gaining the initiative takes precedence over gaining consensus from everybody and and it takes precedence over coming up with the best possible plan because we want to do the best possible plan but sometimes fast action is going to take precedence over that and and Patton said uh, something along the lines of a good plan executed now 
is better than a perfect plan executed sometime next week. <laughs> mm-hmm. So what happens is in those situations, yeah, you're going to have to make the call. You're going to have to be decisive. You're going to have to make the decision. And because you've built trust with your team, then when you do need to make that call, it won't be that big of a deal and people will execute it. Now, I've told this, I've said this before, you know, Leif and I were having a conversation with some of our clients and, and as they, they were kind of talking about the same thing about, you know, giving people orders and they're not listening and what do you do? And, and, and I asked Leif in the middle of the thing, I said, Hey Leif, how many times did I tell you, Hey Leif, this is a command. I'm telling you to do it. I'm ordering you because you work for me. Do it now. Mm. And Leif was like zero times. Now that being said, That being said, although I never in an administrative or in a planning situation ever said, Leif, you will do this now, I'm ordering you because I am the senior man in the situation. In tactical situations, where we were in the field and we had to do things, we had to make things happen quickly, I definitely said things to him and said, hey, go do this now. Like I would have said, you know... Take that building down over there. Hey, move the Humvees over here or whatever. And he would do it because he knew we didn't have time to discuss it. Now, what's interesting about that is it didn't just, it wasn't just me that was telling Leif. Sometimes Leif was saying to me, Jocko, get the Humvees moved over here. Or Jocko, you need to get the element up on that high ground over there. And you know what? We had trust. We had a relationship. And I did it. Mm. Even though I was senior to him. We didn't care who was senior to who. That wasn't the important thing. He saw something. He was making a tactical decision. I knew he wouldn't be telling me to do something unless he needed to have it happen. So if he told me, hey, move the vehicles down the road, I'd be like, Roger, moving. Mm. And, And that doesn't mean that we're, if you take us to a situation where we have the time to debate, like, he would call me up and say, hey, Jocko, I think it might be a good idea to push the vehicles down the road. Oh, why? What's going on? Well, we're starting to see some movement out in the hinterland over there. Okay, got it. I'm going to track it. I'm going to push two vehicles down there. Cool. Right? That's a normal conversation. Mm-hmm. But if all of a sudden there was gunfire and Leif was like, push the vehicles down the road to the north, I'd say, doing it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So there are definitely times where you don't want to sit there and sit around and debate and figure out what the best plan is. There's a time where the leader or the follower or the person that has the most vision of the situation needs to make a call and make it happen. Mm -hmm. So again, the the better relationship you have, the easier this is going to be because you're going to have that little mental unification of the commander's intent and of the task and purpose. And you're going to, you're going to be able to be thinking along the same path. And when you're doing that, everything gets a lot, a hell of a lot easier. So, when you got the time to take the input, take the input, have the debate, have the discussion. That builds the relationship so that when it comes time to be decisive and give a command, you can give it and people react up and down the chain of command without a bunch of hesitation. And you can go back later and say, hey, here's what I was talking about. Here's why we needed to do this. And that's it. Yeah, man. That tr- that trust is so critical, yeah. Like so, so are you saying build that relationship or whatever? And even at the time where it seems valuable, sure, trust. But it's times like this 
where that trust is going to shine even more, you know, when you can just say to do yeah. it. You don't even have to say why to do it because you just know. You know it's a good reason. Yeah, and now, you know, while we're on this subject, I will tell you this as well. Because the more time you spend, if you if I was always giving orders to everyone and not actually discussing, I was just ordering everyone to do th- everything all the time. Mm. You're you're burning up your leadership capital. Yeah, yeah. Like when I, you know, when we're when we're out in the field, and when I was out in the field with the platoons, I seldom gave an order over the radio because I wanted my guys to lead. Mm. When I did say something, the guys would just do it. Because it was me, and they knew that if I was saying it, it was something that had to be done. Right. So if I said, hey, everyone get in building 434 now, mm-hmm. guys would be like, hey, we're going to full there, everyone will get there. Right. Whereas if I was trying to give orders the whole time on every operation, on every little thing and every little detail, eventually you're just the, uh, well, the what is it, the boy that cried wolf. Yeah, yeah. And you want to give every order and people stop listening to you. Yeah. Even though we're in the military, and even though there's a chain of command, and even though they're supposed to listen to me, yeah, you yeah. abuse that thing and people will stop listening to you. Yeah. The less you... The the more you talk, the less people listen. And the less you talk, the more people listen. Hmm. So I reserved my actual directives in the field to be the most important things that I needed. And if I didn't have to say it, I wouldn't. I would let my troopers lead. Hmm. Let my leaders, let my subordinate leadership lead. I wanted them to. Yeah. Quality, not quantity? Affirmative. Next question. Many vets are getting out of the military and going back to college, myself included, or to college for the first time. What advice do you have? I like how you're doing sort of like the newscaster thing when you get Man, done with the question. Keeping, my, keeping it together. I, I like that. I like oh. that. So you're going to college for the – either back to college or you've been in the military. Okay. The number one, out of the gate, crush it. That's what you should do in college. You should crush it. You should study hard, and you should crush it. Now, uh, in order to do that, you got to get a mindset. Because guess what you're going to be thinking when you get out of the military? You're going to be like, oh, this is no big deal. And, right. oh, this, does, this doesn't matter. You're going to be like, hey, I was, in, I was in Iraq eight months ago, or I was in Afghanistan six months ago, and now you're sitting here telling me to read a book and write down words on a piece of paper. This doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. That's an easy. That's an easy path to go down. Mm. It's pretty easy to say. You know why? Because it's actually true. Yeah. And what you did in combat has more gravity and more consequence than anything you're gonna do in college. And if you want to go down that path and be this stuff doesn't matter, this isn't important compared to what I've done, so I'm gonna blow it off. That's a path you can go down if you want to. I don't recommend it. What I recommend you doing is straight up crushing college. That's what I meant. recommend you doing. How do you do that? Because everybody, if you make that decision that you want to crush it, if you want to make the decision that you're going to prove to people that, you know what, yeah, I was overseas, I was in combat, now I'm coming back, and your little games that you're playing, I'm going to beat you in your own games. Yep. So how do you do that? Number one, do the reading that you get assigned. Do the assignments that you get tasked with. Do everything. Let that be your new job. These silly little games that they're playing, let that be your job. Just like I was talking about OCS. When I went to OCS, I made that like a game for me that I was going to win. So do that with college. And then on top of that, make it a game, yes, but then on top of that, as a deeper 
commander's intent, make it that you're going to not just do well there as a game, but you're going to do well so you can get smarter. So you can really actually learn information that's going to make you a better person and give you better ability to dominate in the world. That's what you should be doing in college. Now, these kids that you're going to be going to college with, they're not going to have this attitude. They're going to be, you know, hey, what do I need to do to get by? What's Sally doing tonight? I'm more concerned about that than I am about going out dominating this course so that I can get an A, so that I have knowledge, so I can go and crush some some vocation later on in life. So don't just do it as a game. You got to play the game a little bit. I mean, you got to. For me, I get the game mentality going, but I, the game mentality is rooted in something deeper, and what it's rooted in is gaining knowledge to be smarter and better as a human. Now, a couple things about college and the actual tactics, techniques, and procedures to dominate. Because when I went to college, I did dominate. And when I went to high school, I did not dominate. When I went to high school, I didn't care about high school. I was like, whatever. God, when can I go in the military? <laughs> like, can I go now? So, but when I went to college, I had a new attitude, which was I'm going to dominate. I'm in, I'm in a battle against these people here. I'm going to beat them. So this is some of the things that are important. Number one, college is all about time management. Getting ahead of the curve because it's so easy. That's what happens with kids in college. That's why they don't do well because for the first time, there's no one tracking them. No one's imposing discipline on them. You have to have, in order to do well in college, you have to have self-discipline because no one's going to tell you to start that paper that's due in six weeks. No one's going to tell you to start it tomorrow. Yep. Yep, you can just blow it off. You can blow it off for five and a half weeks, and then you've got to write a 30-page paper in two days, and it's gonna, yep. it's not going to be quality. Yep. No one's going to ask you, have you done your homework before dinner? That's or right. Like, man, so man. you need to get the time management going. You need to get a disciplined time management schedule. You need to get ahead of the curve as early as possible. Write, you know, when you want to, when a paper's due, a 30-page paper, do, you need to write it in chunks. And it makes it so easy. I mean, it was a joke. When I was going to college, I would have my papers completely done like a week out. Yeah. Like a week out, I would be done with a 30-page paper. Yeah. And then I would just be reviewing it and getting it all completely dialed, and I'd turn it in two days early and then move on to the next one. Yeah. Same thing with studying. You don't want to study. You, you do want to study hard right before the day of the test, but you want to have knowledge already absorbed in there, so you want to you study leading up to that. When you do reading that I talked about, highlight. Break out the highlighters. That's what I do in all these books that we're hammering through right now. We don't always, I always send out pictures of them. They're all highlighted and marked up. That's how I'm getting the good information out of them. So highlight, and then another little trick is to make the flashcards. <laughs> I used to highlight, and then I would make flashcards about what I highlighted. Yeah. Turn everything into a question. Yeah. And then you go through the flashcards, and you're going you're gonna to memorize stuff. Yeah. Oh, here's a big one. This is really obvious, but guess what people don't do? Ask questions. Ask questions. I used to raise my hand. I would sit in the front row, first of all, in college. I sat in the front row. I was 20, what was I, 20? I think I was 27 or 28 years old going to college. I would sit in the front row in the little desk, and I looked like Arnold Schwarzenegger in like a little kid's all desk. I'd, then I'd raise my hand all the way up, like all the way up over my head. 
and they'd be looking at me, you know, because in college they kind of stop raising their hand, but I did it anyways, yeah. just to be, be you, just yeah, to be, yeah, just just to yeah. do it. So I'd raise my and, but you ask questions because guess what? The college kids they don't ask questions, and and guess what? Adults don't ask questions. Why don't they ask questions? Because they got an ego. They don't want to look stupid. Right. Yep. I don't care. Nope. I'm here. I to want. Win. I'm here to win. <laughs> Exactly. Oh, I, oh, you don't think I'm smart? Let's check out the GPA, homeboy. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So, ask questions. If I and, and ask questions as soon as that, as soon as the knowledge, as soon as the understanding train starts to get derailed a little bit, ask the question right then. Maybe give it, maybe give it a minute to see if you can get it back on track by yourself. But the minute you realize you're not understanding, raise your hand and say, "Hey, you know what, teacher?" I don't understand that. Can you re-explain that? Yep. Because I'm not understanding. Yeah, you don't want to miss that train. I don't want to miss the yeah, train. You don't want it to go too far off course. Yep. And then you're just lost. Yep. So when you feel it coming off, try and catch up real quick. You know, Take a look and then just raise your hand. Put your hand all the way up in the air. Sit in the front row. Put your hand all the way up in the air and look at the teacher with, with a dead serious face. And they're going to look at you all nervous and be like, yes? Yeah, yeah. That's the only one. I went to college, they called me John. Because... Because that's what the attendance sheet said. Because my real name is John, and that's what sure. the attendance sheet said. Mm-hmm. And so they'd, yeah, I'd, I'd be sitting there, and they'd say, uh, "Yes, John," <laughs> and I'd say, "Yeah, I don't understand that. Could you re-explain it, please?" Hey, when they called you John, did that fuel the fire? No, not at all. It's it doesn't matter to me, but it's the only time because like I didn't know these people. Because normally, if I'm gonna work with someone. When I introduce myself, I'll be like, hey, my name is Jocko, because that's what everyone always calls me. Right. But these people would call my name in the attendance, and I didn't want to have this, you know. Adversarial relationship? Yes. Yeah, so oh, yes, John. That's mm-hmm. me. The other thing is, you know, do some psychological warfare. You know, I would line up my pencils. I do it on the podcast, you boy, right here. I line up pencils. It's, a, it's, a, it's also getting into character. Right, you're priming yourself. I'm priming myself. I'm looking at the teacher like, I am so ready to take yep. notes that if I have a downed pencil, it will not cost me a single letter. <laughs> I'll be back in the game. <laughs> All your contingency passes Yeah, right contingency there. passes are standing by. And then, so sit in the front row, line up your pencils, have your notebooks ready. Personally, challenge the teacher. You want, it to, you want your personal challenge to be to pull every piece of knowledge out of them and then go beyond what they know. I was, I was, I was competing with the teachers. Yeah, I was yeah. trying to learn more than they actually knew. <laughs> and then they bring their little tests or little exams to you, and you just crush them and yeah. smash them. Now, the the thing you got to be careful of here is this can get political. Mm-hmm. This can get political, and if you start being offensive with the way you act, right. if you start rubbing it in their face, then guess what? That can affect your grade. Yep. And part of the game here is to get a good grade. Yep. So you actually, it's a time for you to start building your relationship building skills, time to start building your leadership skills, because you're going to start manipulating the teacher, mm-hmm. right? You want to make them think that you're actually super interested in the stupid crap class that they're teaching. I want them to think that. Now, now, now some classes you're going to love, and they're gonna, you're going to learn a lot from. Mm-hmm. Like if you're into English... And you get to take advanced grammar and syntax. You're going to be sitting in there like, yes, this is rocks. But there's going to be some classes you don't want to take. But you got to get in there and make your teacher think that you're super interested and super fired up to learn that thing. And that you're not just interested in the grade. But at the same time, they got to know that grade's important to you too. So you want to get along with them. And again, go into college. And if you're a veteran, you're representing all of us out there. 
So you should be going in there and just smashing college. And that way we have a better reputation, not just for being tough on the battlefield, but for being smart and academically sound as well. Yeah, and, and in a way, if you go to college later, you kind of, in, in this weird way, have an advantage. Oh, not even a weird way. St- you straight up have an advantage. Yeah. Especially after you've been in the military. Yeah, so much, man. Because you've got the discipline. Yeah. But the only thing that'll screw you is if you have the discipline, but you don't apply it because you think, oh, this doesn't matter. Right. This is nothing compared to combat. That's yeah. what I started off by addressing. Yeah. This is important. Yeah. You just have to make it important. Yeah. Because, okay, you pay for college, and this is the part that I think, well, I know I just couldn't connect the dots on this. Even, no matter how many people said it, I just couldn't connect the dots that you're going to college. It's worth, you know, this is... It's all up to you. These people are here to give you an education and all this stuff. You can do whatever you want to do. You don't even have to choose a major right away. You can do whatever you want to do. You're going to have the education to do it. And then to me, it just didn't register. It just seemed like the same thing as high school, except no one was monitoring your grades. <laughs> and there was a, way, a, a lot more going on. So really, it was the same thing. You play yeah. football. You're one of the cool kids. There's cool parties on the, you know, and you, but the different thing, which was better than high school, is you had your own place to stay. Uh, other people were staying around you that were your peers that were hanging out and didn't have to go to bed at a certain time. So if you're not that into grades and stuff in high school, and you don't see that clearly, like how you would if you're like 27, 28 mm-hmm. years old, coming back and seeing like the real value of education and college and stuff, bro, all it's going to look like is just one big party. Yeah. Then maybe have some class or something yeah. going on during the day. I don't know. And then, they, and you make your own schedule. Mm-hmm. You're like, hey, choose this class at this time and this time. And you're like, you almost, it's almost like. One of the biggest tests in college is if you can pass everything that you just talked about. Yeah. If you can go and you can get the discipline, you can get the time management, you can go to the classes, you can study the stuff. That's one of the tests in college. And military personnel shouldn't fail that test. The only reason they, I'm telling you, not, 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 I'm sure there's other reasons, but definitely the, the fact that they're not taking it seriously is, is what's going to cost them. Oh, like, like what they've been through is like yeah. way more impactful yeah, than this. Way more impactful. Stuff you and you know what? Doing. That's true. But yeah. again, we're not trying to, we, we want to win. Yeah. You know, I want you, if you're a veteran and you're listening to this, I want you to dominate. And it shouldn't even be fair. I mean, honestly, when I was going to college, it it wasn't even fair. Yeah. I mean, because I was just ahead. I was just working. I was concentrating. I was focused. And I was making myself focus. Yeah. And yeah. So that's what you got to do. I remember I had this, and you know, at UH, there's like, you know, there's, there's those smaller classes and there's lecture classes. So. I remember in the lecture class, it was like criminology or something I happened to be taking. And there was this guy, front, he was basically you, except a real like more nerdy type guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and he'd be right in the front. Not like just in the front row, right here in front yeah. of the teacher. That's and there was like a projector thing that he'd kind of, he's right next to that. And man, this guy, if he had a question, boom, he was on. He would monopolize the whole class. Yeah. He didn't care. And I'm in there like, man, this guy is motivated. I don't know why. Maybe this is his major, <laughs> but he is not ashamed or nothing. And so one day we had these um, like speeches, like you, you have you to, to like read up on something and then present. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't remember. I think I did it. Maybe I did it. I don't know. I forget. But I remember when it was his turn. And it's the auditorium, so you have a little mic. You know, uh, teacher had a mic. He gives you the mic. You say your speech. So that this it's this guy's turn to go up, and the teacher 
you know, gives him the mic. He's like, I don't need that. He goes, can you guys hear me in the back? And I was like, damn, this guy knows, you know, he's into this thing. He gives his speech, and he, had, he might as well have been the teacher, this guy. Mm-hmm. And he was an older guy. He was mm-hmm. maybe, you know, I'm like 18 years old. This guy's like probably 25 or so. Maybe he was a veteran, actually. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, man, it wouldn't surprise me, because this guy was there, and he was there to win. Yeah. And thinking yes. back as an older guy, man... I wish I just had that attitude. Yeah. Because I had the capability. Man, mm-hmm. the, the classes that I liked, like I, I took a, a musculoskeletal anatomy class, mm-hmm. and I got an A in that one. I think mm-hmm. I got like 97%, and I was pissed. Like, fucking that last 3%. <laughs> but, so thinking like really my whole just outlook on that class, like I was there, but it was a little bit different than you were. I was straight up interested in it. Yeah. No, and, and there was classes that I was straight up interested in too. You yeah. know, And those classes are easier to get through because you like them. You yeah. enjoy them. Yeah, but man, that attitude of like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna win. win. Like whatever, te- like the test was like this, almost a way to just show off how powerful I am. Yeah, like this little thing. You know? That's exactly and then what boom, I. That was it, that was know? my attitude. Man, I, you, you know, I, I one, one thing, one more thing I want to add is when I talk about concentrating and focused. I would set up the time management. You don't want to try and because I know everybody, everybody that's you know been overseas. It's like, oh, I got trouble. I have trouble concentrating. Right. So, so, so. What you want to do is you want to chunk down your time so you're not trying to force yourself to concentrate for six straight hours. You know, you want to, hey, I'm going to bang out an hour and a half right now, and I'm going to get into this. Then I'm going to go roll jujitsu, and when I come back, I'm going to do another hour and a half. And then I'm going to do a workout, and then I'm going to come back, I'm going to do another hour, then I'm going to hang out for a little bit, eat some dinner, and then I'm going to go and, you know, finish up and review stuff at the end of the night. So that's just one way to overcome the attention span disorder that we all have mm. of, hey, I can't concentrate on this right now. One way to overcome that is to try and do stuff for short periods of time. Even when I was writing the book, I didn't write for 10 hours at a time. Mm. I wrote for an hour, you know, 50 minutes, but I did it every day consistently. Yeah. And that's how you, so you want to chunk this stuff down so you don't have to sit there and focus. Sometimes you have to. Yeah. But you don't want to have to sit there and and focus on something for six straight hours. Yeah. It's difficult. Yeah, man. And Give yourself a rest. How are you saying, like, um, and, and this comes from a lack of perspective. I mean, to not be able to do this or to choose not to do it or whatever. It comes from, again, a lack of perspective that an 18-year-old would have. But going back, how you can get smarter and understand that you're using that to be a like more better. educated, yeah. better person. So if you're kind of call it gamification, what you're doing, yes. like, I'm gonna oh, make this yeah. into a game, right? So use that like okay, let's say I learn about whatever XYZ. I'm gonna use that what we learned today, I'm gonna use that like on a like back to a video game where um you know you choose your guy or you're okay, there's this game called Super You're gonna Sprint. try and use it in a real scenario. You're yeah, gonna but apply no, 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 it in real life. Yeah, yeah, fully but um, like, okay, there's a game called Super Off-Road. You get a truck, and you race. And if you win, you get these points to add acceleration. You get to add turbo boost. You get mm-hmm. whatever you got to add, and you only have a little... So basically, you're doing that. So n- you learn XYZ, and think, like, boom, now, I'm, now i got XYZ oh, in my, in my little brain. Saying. You know, Now I can take on the world with this XYZ I just learned. And you just keep it like that. That's actually how I feel when I read now. Knowledge like is I, power. I just learned about that, like boom, boom, applying to, and then now I'm, when I get up or whatever, I'm like, oh shoot, I'm kind of like an upgraded person now. Now yeah. that I know about this, that's you know? what that's what that's great. That's a great way of thinking about it. College should upgrade you mentally so you yeah. have more firepower to use against the yeah. world. And whether that, yeah, and the and world you can use or it for the, the next class, yeah, or the next or class or whatever. Yeah. yeah, man. 
and that lack of perspective, man. When you're 18, mm. you got parties going on. You're the, you know, you could. I think you could probably follow fall into that too but just less likely because after come from the military if you had it's like when you're 18 you're pressured to go to college this way after high school mm-hmm. everyone's talking so about wait, what you're saying the military do. guys could fall into what like the trap of like okay but thinking about it not as likely oh, partying? Just of like partying oh, and yeah, dang, of this, course this they new could. environment oh, is just yeah. like so seductive you know yeah oh absolutely because yeah. these military guys they're gonna have the gi bill right, they're right. like Roll. They got a nice car. Everyone yep. else is struggling. Students, and they're pretty much set. Right, popular. And all of a sudden, they're like, "Oh yeah, well, you know, they know about the world. They've been around the world. They know how to drink and they know how to party really well, <laughs> and so they can yeah. take a leadership role in partying with other people and yeah. they can have a great time. Yep. And that's cool. But make sure you don't. Make sure you upgrade your your truck yeah while you're there too <laughs> yeah so so you're more likely when especially when you make the decision kind of on your own to go back yeah like like i said when you're 18 coming out of high school everyone's talking your parents are talking about it most likely kids around you're like hey i got into this college right? and if you're the guy who's not going to college <laughs> unless you have some cool other cool plan or whatever um, unless unless you just join the military Right, but that's like another thing, yeah. you know. Like they went to the military, but what are you doing? And you're like, I better go to college then, yeah. you know, unless you're going to. The so you kind of go because you're expected to go, but you don't have that clarity. Like, if you go back, go back mm. later, like some people nowadays, it's popular. To well, I, the I do world. think though a lot of military guys that once they're getting out, people say, well, "What are you going to do now?" Oh, and they yeah. go, okay. they go, uh, well, I'm going to go to college. I'm going to use my GI Bill. And they go, okay. Yeah. See? But they're going without a, without a focus and without a plan. So yeah. the military guys can fall into that trap as right. well. And that's why I'm hoping that they're listening to this going, hey, you know what? Absolutely. Take advantage of the fact that you're with a bunch of people and you can hang out and you can party and have a good time. But have the discipline that you win. Yeah. None of it matters. That partying doesn't mean anything if you don't win every day and make yourself better and come out of there with the ability now to set yourself up for a good life because that's what college is supposed to do it's supposed to give you opportunity yeah that's what you want is opportunities that you can take advantage of it man it's so true man it's like i i'm thinking back to any party hangout situation is not serving me at all right now no at all not one and i think that was like that's what really got in the way. I think, and not partying like I was in this big partier because yeah. it wasn't the case. But it was it's just, just there. The social scene just pulled had way more of a draw than making it to class. Of course, you know, you're a human being. You like social activity. Most human beings like that. Yeah, man. Not all of us can sit around and be like, no, I do not negative want to speak to other people. I, if I went, if I went back to college for, for, you know, if I found myself in that situation. Bro, it'd be just like how you said. You bring your A game. I'd bring my A every single day. I wouldn't. Literally, you'd be. You know how like when you train for a tournament. Yeah. You know, and you're, and you're just like, hard. yeah, guys are going. At, that's the last thing I want to do. I want to eat right now. I want to rest, and I can't wait to get back to training so I can learn some new stuff, get in better shape. You know, so it's like mm-hmm. laser focus, focus. You know. Yeah, and even if it's not like focusing on the goal the whole time, you're focusing on winning that day mm-hmm. and winning the next day, winning this week. You know, man, that that's a valuable tool, man. Valuable advice as well. Dig it. <laughs> Next question. Can you discuss peer leadership a bit? Such as during the BOLC, which is basic officer leader course. In the Army, yeah. In the Army. Ranger school or other training environments without a command structure. I know you've touched on it before and said that it's prob- probably the toughest form of leadership. 
but if you could discuss things that have worked well for you and any tips in these environments. So peer leadership, and actually, whether that's harder than leading up the chain of command, which takes the most amount of nuance and technique and savvy, as opposed to peer leadership, which definitely takes a lot as well, and there's nothing new here. Yeah. Nothing new when you're trying to lead peers, just like when you're trying to lead up the chain of command, you're trying to lead down the chain of command, what are you going to do? Number one, you're going to be humble, you're going to listen, you're going to lead when it's time to lead, you're going to follow when it's time to follow, take the hard jobs, work hard, put the priority on the team instead of yourself, accept the blame when things go wrong, give credit away to the team when things go right, keep your ego in check. And keeping your ego in check is very important because when it comes to peer leadership, this turns into like there's a little ego struggle going on. There's actually a big ego struggle coming on over the, top, the whole time because what peers are actually competing with each other in some form mm. for promotion, for authority, for recognition. So you're going to want that credit. You're going to want to be recognized. And those little things inside your brain, if you really want to be a good peer leader, you got to let them go. Mm. You got to let them go. You got to stay humble. Now, for instance, when you come up with a plan, you can't get addicted to your plan. You can't think that your plan, you can't impose your plan on your peers. You don't want to do that. You want to hear other people out. And in fact, one way to build leadership credibility is when you become champions of other people's plans. And you go, man, that's awesome. I'll run with it. And you take a leadership role with someone else's plan. How cool is that? They actually love you then. Mm. They say, man, Jocko doesn't have an ego. He's running with the plan I put out. And he's giving me credit for it. Of course you're building leadership leadership uh, credit, credit with that person. Now, so those are all. Those are challenges, right? And, you know, a lot of that, again, boils back to ego. But the other thing is you've got to be mentally nimble when you're doing peer leadership because you're going to be constantly shifting back and forth and back and forth and back and forth between the dichotomies of leadership. Mm-hmm. The things of being aggressive but not being overbearing, being a leader, being a follower, stepping up and yet not stepping on people's toes. So you gotta you got to balance those, and you got to be going back and forth between those all the time. And that's what, makes, that's what makes peer leadership hard, because if you and I are peers, if I'm in charge of you, then, then we know that. And so I can kind of, I, I can be a little bit more inactive in my balancing act, because I'm in charge. Mm-hmm. So, hey, Echo, this is what we're going to do. You know, I, I, I can be less active in balancing. And it, if, it, same thing if you work for me. We know what the roles are. You're leader, I'm following. It, it's that. Mm-hmm. The other way around, I'm, I'm leading and you're following. We know what the roles are. With a peer, it's just constantly balancing. Mm-hmm. And if I go too strong in one direction, I'm going to affect your, I'm going uh, to offend your ego which is going to make you turn against me, which is where all these problems come from. Yep. So, the, and the biggest thing about that, about that balance is what makes you good at balancing it is knowing that it's there. Mm-hmm. That's what gives you the ability to balance is that you know that you are balancing. 
Mm-hmm. When people don't know what, that they're balancing, that's when they're just like, hey, I'm, I'm leading. I'm stepping up. So they just lead and everyone goes, man, this guy's a jerk. He has a big ego. Okay. That's what you don't want to do. Yeah. But when you know that, hey, if I'm stepping up to lead right now, I need to pay attention to look around and see how people are taking it and make sure that I'm getting the support of people. And if I'm not, then I'll go, hey, Echo, you know, you seem to have really good input on how this, why don't you take this section and lead it? Mm-hmm. So people see, oh, Jocko's not trying to take control of everything. He's not a control freak. That's what you want to make happen. So that is, in a nutshell, some advice on how to lead in the peer situations. Yeah, fully. When when you first meet someone, a peer, Mm -hmm. especially guys, guys have this a lot, where if they're even close to being you, identity-wise, like, you know, within a certain age of you, within a certain build of you or whatever, your brain goes into this like real focus mode, this small part of your brain, and it it wants to make a decision. Is this guy my, my enemy or my friend? <laughs> I want one of them. I don't care which one, I, I, but I just got to figure out what it is. So automatically you feel a sense of competition when you see a guy near you in your like environment. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you're, you, get, you go to the gym or you go to jujitsu, like what happens if a new guy walks in and he's about your size, and he walks into the jujitsu. Yeah, there's arena. A, there is an assessment competition. Yep, place. assessment. Oh, don't let him be wearing a black belt. Oh, that's even closer to you now. Now it's like, okay, who's this guy? You know, who's this guy? And then we got something to settle. Yeah, but <laughs> let's say he rolls up to you, and he's just so nice to you. Yeah, of course. And, you, and then you guys roll. He's good. He he gets you whatever. He, he disarmed get, me. Right, but he's really nice. He likes the yeah. same football team you like. I'm saying he disarmed me right. by saying, hey, man, what's going on? Hey, it's really good to meet you. I've heard of you. Uh, I know you train yeah. with Dean Lister. Dean Lister's like one of the main guys I've always liked. It's great right. to meet you, Jocko. Right. I appreciate you guys letting me come to the gym, man. Love to roll with you sometime. You know, right. if, if you get the chance, just, you know, I, I, I know uh, really respect your all's game. Right. Yes. Exactly right. So, boom, now that decision that you, like, on this primal yeah. level have to make. Yeah, I made You're it. like, okay, yeah. I'm, I got you. I made You're it. my friend. You're yeah. my ally. But you get a guy who only mad dogs you, but oh, like, yeah. uh, with other calculations, he's kind of the same as you, more or less. Yeah. If he's That's mad at so, so now, this is the thing, to, to take what you're saying, which is 100% right, and folks, this isn't just about jiu-jitsu, obviously. Right, right. This is about life. at life. And when you meet a person that comes into your office, and they're, uh, they have a role at their company, or within your company, or at another company, and you're meeting them for the first time, and you know that they're somewhere equivalent of what you're, they're an EVP, or they're an SVP, or they're a VP, and you know that you are too... Or they're a regional manager, or whatever the case may be. You're automatically doing an assessment. So, what do you want to do? Do you want to do you want to bring them to make the friend decision or foe decision? Right. Let's be leaders. Yeah, and that's the key right there. And create relationships, not adversaries. Yes. Boom. Or not adversarial relationships. Yes. Um, plan words, obviously, but yeah. And the key there, how you're saying is. You want them to make the decision that you're their friend. Yes. It's not, you're not saying you make the decision that that's your friend. And, and you know what else? The, just going to ego and insecurities, the more secure you are as a person, the the easier it is to be nice to them. Right. Like when someone comes into the gym and they're mad dogging me, it's not hard for me to be like, hey man, what's going on? Hey, wh- wh- where are you from? Right. Because I know I've been training for a long time. I know that they're not going to mop the mat up with me. That's not. It's not going to happen. Oh right, right, yes. Like because okay. I'm, I'm confident. Secure, yeah. You know, I'm secure. Uh, 
I know I've been training for a long time. If I'm in a business world and I meet someone and I know that they're might be close to my equivalent. Am I insecure where I got to bow up to them and act like a tough guy? No. Mm-hmm. I'm actually confident that I, what I do is well, what, what I do is good. I know I lead a good team. I know that I'm solid. I know I know my information well. I know I'm a hard worker. So why am I going to bow up to them? Mm-hmm. I got, I'm not threatened by them. Mm-hmm. It's no big deal to me. Let's do this. Right. And yeah, and even if you feel those, you're compelled to, to kind of have those feelings or to do something to bow up or whatever because maybe you are insecure. Not everyone's secure, whatever. Um, just keep it on the inside. You know, don't behave like that. Yeah, just, exactly. Just know that, okay, because, I'm feeling this, but because, I'm not like Because that. when somebody bows up to you, when somebody bows up to me, I don't get the feeling that they're secure and confident. Nope. And I don't even get the feeling that they're good. <laughs> I get the feeling like, oh, this guy's protecting something. This guy's hiding something. Yeah. He must not be that good because he's intimidated by me. That's why he's bowing up to me. Right. If he wasn't intimidated by me, he'd be treating me cool. Yeah. But he is intimidated by me. So yeah. the tougher you try and act, that's actually to a skilled kind of person that can read people, the tougher you try and act, the weaker you actually appear. Yeah. Now, if you're running around intimidating white belts, either in the business world or on the jiu-jitsu mat, that doesn't matter. Because you can win anyways. Yep. So don't be intimidating the white belts. <laughs> yeah, bro. All right. But yeah, make them want to be friends with you. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. I'm not going to that one. Okay, next question. Jocko, how would you have handled the leadership role in the First World War trench, mm. in the trenches? In other words, seemingly helpless situation. This is a, This is a question that I didn't even want to answer because it's just such a brutal question mm. and that's why i did answer it because <laughs> I, I i want to have some brutal questions and i would love to think that i would have stood up like a man and like a hero and done everything in my power to stop the madness mm-hmm. and to come up with a new way and protest the futile tactics and raise my hand and say we're not doing this sir i will not send my men to their deaths i would love to think that that's what I would have done. And I can tell you when, when, when I was told to do things in Iraq that I thought we shouldn't be doing, I said, hey, you know what? That's not a good idea. Let's find another way. Let's do something different. So I know I've done that before. We got, we got, we had operations that we looked at and said, you know what? This is not a smart operation. There's a really high risk and there's very low reward. Let's, let's, Let's not do that one. Let's find another way to do it. So I know I've done that. But you take me and you put me in a World War One trench. Now we have a different mind. I have a different brain. And the thing that I'm scared of, the thing that haunts me is, what if my mind was trapped? What if I couldn't see the futility of the situation? Because everyone's saying, no, you know what? When we do this attack, we've done these things and we've prepared for it and we've got more bombs we're going to drop. We've got more artillery. This is going to be the one. You just need to go over the top one more time. Well, what if I believe that? What if I couldn't see the solutions in front of me? And that's what scares me is... What if you become so brainwashed and closed-minded that you cannot see anymore and you lose your ability to think? Mm. 
And that's why all the time you're going to hear me say, free your mind. That's what I'm talking about. Free your mind. That is the situation that I am talking about. Question what is around you. Question the status quo and question the authority and the leadership and your subordinates. Question everything in order to make sure that you're not following a a well-worn path. A well-worn path that other people have gone by. Maybe it's a path that you've walked before, but it's a well-worn path, and it's a path that leads to suffering and pain and tragedy, and you can't get off the path because your mind is not free. So, how would I have handled the leadership situation in World War I? I cannot honestly answer that question. But the way I try and live and the way I try and think is one with an open mind, a free mind that can see, that can see different perspectives, that can detach from what's being told to me and I can question it and I can come up with a different solution. Free your mind. Sound advice. It's a tough question. Next question. Jocko, Echo. Tough versus smart. So wait, what is this, do you think? Is this like, is it better to be tough than smart or just in general? Well, you just read the question as it was stated. It just said, topic for podcast, tough versus smart. And in my opinion, I don't think you need to be tough versus smart. I I don't think it needs to be tough or smart. I think you need to be tough and smart. I don't think those two traits are mutually exclusive at all. Mm Mm-hmm. And being tough and being smart is actually what we want. <laughs> we, you know, so when we think of tough, I think we think of using, for instance, using blunt force to solve a problem. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and you might think that using blunt force to solve a problem is stupid. And at the same time, you might think that stepping back from a problem and taking a look or stepping back away from it might be giving up. So you're weak or you're not tough. But there are times when those options are the best options. There's sometimes when blunt force is the best option and you just got to power through and you got to be tough and you got to get over the hurdle or over the obstacle or through the obstacle through blunt force trauma. And there's other times where the best possible thing you could do is step back. And quit beating your head against the wall and trying to blunt force through something. You want to step back and find another way. You want to be smarter, not harder. And I think, again, this comes out to balance. And people pushing when it's a good time to push and a good time to be tough. And at the same time, knowing that you need to balance that with being smart. And the only way you're going to be able to do that The only way you're going to be able to figure out 
if you're just being too smart or not smart enough or too tough or not tough enough is to be able to detach and step back and look and see assess the situation. If you get too in the weeds on it, you won't be able to see that, hey, you've beat your head against the wall 47 times. That's enough. Stop. Step back and find another way. Mm-hmm. Just like if you're so engrossed in solving the problem and finding the perfect solution and finding the least impact way through the smartest resolution, you don't. if you don't step back from that, you might not see that if you wait any longer on your brilliant plan, mm-hmm. you're going to be overrun mm-hmm. by the problem itself. So being smart and being tough are not mutually exclusive. You need to be both, and the way that you balance them is by stepping back, detaching, and doing always doing an assessment of what's happening. So what if you had to choose, and I'm going to make the question even harder, no specific scenario. What if you had to choose? you got to be either really smart but not tough or really smart. Or or really tough and not smart. What what would you choose? Yeah, unfortunately, you have to go with being smarter. Yeah, I mean that's why just is the that fact. unfortunate? It's not unfortunate, but it's just the, the the reality is being smarter is better. Yeah, because being smarter means you can find another solution. Yep. But, you know the the wall that you might be banging your head against might literally be impassable through that through that section. Yep. And if all you're going to do is beat your head against it, eventually you're going to you're going to not make and you're going to die. Yeah. So, so being smart is always better. Yeah. And hey, I guess I, I should add it just in life. Let's say, you know, the, really the question I was wondering is like in life, you know, God was there and he said, OK, I'm going to bestow one of these on you in just in your life. You can either have a knack for being really smart, but but not tough at all or uh, really tough and, and not be smart. Smart because it, it's, 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 it, I'm, I shouldn't even be like making this like this is a hard decision. Right. Being smarter is better. Yeah, <laughs> being being smarter is better. Yeah. That's, that's, there's no doubt about it. That's yep. being smarter is better. But get, by the way, being smarter. Look look at the human race. Why do we rule the world over the animals? I mean, you tell me that you're tougher than a ch- than a chimpanzee. Well, me, no. yeah, but <laughs> I'm just saying, right? Me. The only reason the, the thing that wins is intellect. And yep. it'll win every single time. Well, it'll win a lot of the time. Yeah. A lot of the time. And if you're smart, you can figure out a way to, to overcome the toughness. To yeah. be tough. Yeah. And not even necessarily it's called to a make your body. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. Like when you say, are you to, am I tougher than a gorilla? We'll say, well, in a way, yeah. yeah. You know, I if mean, I have a shotgun. Yeah. Or if I have a, yeah, anything, you know, anything that I think up to build or buy. You know, yeah. because of other people like me thought it up and I used their knowledge, you know, because I was yeah. that smart to do it. Which goes back to the original question or what question we answered a little while ago about college. Like, go to college and improve <laughs> you your go. smartness. Get smarter. Yep. Yeah, the smarter. That's why I always say that on the podcast. I'm not, I'm not always talking about being stronger right. and faster and bigger and tougher. I'm always talking about you got to be smarter, too. No doubt about it. Yep. The, the success I've had from my life is zero of it. Just about zero of it has come from anything physical or being tough. Now, there is a mental toughness that does help you when you are doing intellectual things. I mean, I can force myself to do some intellectual uh, goals or some intellectual challenges that if I wasn't, if I didn't, tough isn't the best word, but if I wasn't mentally tough, I wouldn't be able to do it. Right. Yeah. But if you're smart enough, you can figure figure out out ways to get mentally tough. Like if you're like, hey, I know I'm not mentally tough. 
I'm smart enough to know I'm not mentally tough or I'm not physically yeah. tough. Let me figure out a way to get met. I'll figure out a good workout program. Who, who would you toughness. rather be, the guy that is really tough and can stay in cold water for 45 minutes or the guy that invents a wetsuit like Jack O'Neill right. <laughs> and I can stay in the water for unlimited amount of time now? Yeah, there you go. Nope. Case in point, Jack O'Neill, keeping it real. Boom. Name dropper. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> I didn't say I knew Jack Right, O'Neal. but, you know, you implied Me that. Me and Jack, we go way back. Yep. Uh, we got time one for one more, one. maybe. Maybe. <laughs> um, okay, Jocko. As far as self-improvement and getting after it goes, whose standard should one measure themselves by? So, who do I use as a standard to measure myself by it's it's really everyone and no one because look, there's people in the world that have skills and strength and talent that I will never have I won't I mean some of these notions that you can be whatever you want to be as as long as you want it bad enough. Those are not true. <laughs> They're fairy tales. We all have limitations. And I don't have the right genes to be an Olympic weightlifting champion. I don't have the right genetics to be an Olympic champion sprinter. Or a gymnast or whatever sport you want to name. Now, sure, if I trained my whole life, perhaps I could have achieved some high level in those sports, but I can tell you I do not have the DNA to be the best in the world in those categories. So, what does that mean? Does that mean that I give up? Does that mean that I quit? Of course not. Not at all. It means that I'm going to try to be the best that I can be. The strongest, the fastest, the smartest. The smartest human that I can become. That's what I'm going to go for. And... I will I will compare myself to others and and look at them and see what they're doing and I'll say that it is possible. How close can I get to that greatness? How close can I get to that glory? But the reality is that my glory it doesn't happen in front of a crowd. It doesn't happen in a stadium. It doesn't happen on a stage. There's no medals handed out. My glory happens in the darkness of the early morning. In solitude, alone. Where I try. And I try and I try again to be everything that I possibly can be. The best that I possibly can be. Better than I was yesterday. And better than other people thought I could be. 
faster and stronger and smarter and with one victory that no one can ever take away from me. A victory that is earned every single day. A victory of determination and will and discipline. And a victory that is achieved because I will not stop. And I think that's all I've got for tonight. So, once again, thanks to everyone for listening and downloading and supporting the podcast through the various options that we have to do. So, Echo, what are those options? Options. If you care about supplementation, the good kind that work, um, go to Onnit, Onnit Supplements. Alpha Brain for your brain, make you smarter, make quicker decisions, memory, all that stuff. Proven to work, by the way. I don't know if you knew that. I did. You know, some, some supplements, they don't prove. They just say, hey... This is what's in it. That's it. These ones are proven. And you can even go on the website, look at all their research. It's cool. Anyway, onit.com slash Jocko, 10% off. Boom. Um, or before you do your Amazon shopping, just remember to go to JockoPodcast.com or JockoStore.com. Just click on the Amazon link. And then and we boom, get a little, a little cut to support the podcast. It's like passive supporting. It's like easy, you know? But it costs you nothing. It costs you nothing. You're actually just... Getting after Just it, getting really. After it, really. Yeah, really. But you're but you're supporting the podcast for free. Yep. That's Dig legit. It. That is legit. Um, or if if you like the shirts and mugs and stuff, you know, if you're into that, which I know I am. <laughs> um, they're pretty cool. We do. I we I do add like layers to the shirts. You know, they're not just ooh a cool saying or. Discipline equals freedom, that's it. There's like more to it, you know? It's like you're saying that you, I don't know. Anyway, shirts are cool in my opinion. If that's your opinion as well, look at So them. you're saying there's a whole nother level of cool to the shirts that you make. I think they're cool. I, but I, I don't want to make I that I would tend assessment. to agree with you, yeah, actually. I, there you go. But I don't want to be like, hey, they're cool. And then people go there, be like, you know, they have a different opinion. Yeah. They're not cool. I don't want to be the guy pushing not cool stuff. I think they're cool. Go to JockoStore.com. If you think they're cool, go ahead and get one or two. And that's also supporting the podcast, and you're yeah. getting a cool shirt. Totally so we, that's cool. Yeah. We dig that. Yeah, and I and I I use the actually people ask me this, so it is relevant. Where what kind of shirts do I use? I use the blended one, poly poly cotton blend. Oh, so they're, they're like high softer. quality. There's a bunch of different kinds. There's a really light one, and then there's like a medium but still soft, and you know that's the one I chose because the light one. It's good, and I, I like those a lot, but um, some people might not, you know? Too light. Too light, maybe. Yeah. yeah maybe. I don't know. But um, I, I, I figured that out, and but it's they're dope. Anyway, they're the high-quality ones. They're not the ballpark giveaway shirts, you know? Quality items. Get. Yeah, they're good. Anyway, there you go. JockoStore.com. Um, check them out for yourself. And then, um, yeah, there you go. Well... Also, you can support the podcast by reviewing it on iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or whatever you listen to it on. And that helps promote the podcast and spread the word. So take a couple minutes and write a review. And I read them. So say something cool in there. <laughs> say something cool and then I'll, I'll talk about it. It'll be in my brain. 
So I like yeah. that. They don't let you respond to them on iTunes, though. Like, I can't say, like, hey, man, thanks. Yeah, because it, essentially it's it's a review. It's not like a, a conversation. I know, thing, but it know, should like, be. It should be a conversation. So I could be like, hey, man, <laughs> thanks. Up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah there is that. That would sure. be cool. Well, but then again, if if people think that you're going to, like, respond to it, they might not be oh, even accurate. Oh, that's you know? true. So well, if you say something cool, you know what some people have done? They've, they've uh, like taken a screenshot of it and then right. put it on Twitter and that way I can be like oh that's cool man that's, all, yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. awesome appreciate it, it or I can say hey good point yep we'll 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 think about that yeah we'll make some adaptation adaptations perhaps getting, perhaps not but getting a screenshot of their iTunes review that that's a message in and of itself that's saying hey I I put a review on iTunes yeah it's not necessarily hey you know your the audio's too quiet you know it's not that if they wanted to tell you that they tell you that on Twitter. Yeah. Well, then, but, the, but they're at least yeah, at least they're showing. Right, right. That hey, this is yeah. this is this is funny because I would like to see like some reviews. Like there's some people that write reviews yeah. that I, I I laugh at because they're funny. Yeah, they're, they're yeah. like I I am definitely getting after it tonight. <laughs> you know what I go? That's yeah, awesome, yeah. man. Yeah. Yeah. This guy this guy I talk to all the time. Brady he. He he'll like shop at Amazon and he'll be like click screenshot. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, that's awesome. You're the man. So that's cool. Appreciate that. And also, of course, if you want to continue this conversation like we just talked about, or you want to ask questions, or you want to give us feedback, or you want to send us a screenshot of your Amazon purchase, <laughs> uh, or you just want to kick it with us, then you can find us on the interwebs on Twitter. Echo Charles is at Echo Charles, and I am at. Jocko Willink. We are also there with Facebook and the Instagram. And we do appreciate what you do for us. The questions, the support, the comments, the fact that all of you are out there getting better. Putting these principles to work on the battlefield, in your business, in your personal life. I, I've seen a bunch of SEAL buddies that I have and they're they're into it. They're listening and they're giving me feedback. And that's that is worth everything to me mm-hmm. to know. And I get a bunch of emails from Marines, from cops, from firefighters that they tell me that they are putting this stuff to work. I get emails from business people that they're putting this stuff to work. And that's what we're doing this for. Yep. And so that's what inspires me to do this and keep doing this. And for me to push myself because you are pushing yourself out there, earning that victory Every single day by going out there and getting after it. And so, until next time, this is Echo and Jocko. Out. <laughs>